This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Knockback is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to collinslaststand.com. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan, Mr. Martin Moriarty. Dagan. (laughs) Wait a second. I'm a little hurt that you didn't, first of all, are you thinking of the right movie? Second of all, I'm a little hurt that you, you didn't introduce me as your lovely assistant Kyle I have to say I have to start the show with a happy birthday my friend thank you the big four oh I know I'm 40 years old can you believe it <laughs> no it's unbelievable you're catching up I know you're it's, literally catching up to me every year is two years now <laughs> uh no I'm 36 and at the day we're recording this and yeah I'm not I'm not a huge fan of my birthday so I don't really make a big to do out of it but I'm gonna go to mom's after this and eat dinner and oh that's good I was wondering okay cool. yeah so that's basically what's it, for dinner. Don't say meatloaf. Don't no, definitely. She it. offered she offered meatloaf, chicken cutlets. We could have done. But uh, no, we're going to do, you know, gravy and pasta and sausages nice. and meat, meatballs. Oh, and, I'm jealous. And yeah. Lucky son of a sons of bitch. Sons of bitch. <laughs> yeah. So. So, yeah, I'm feeling uh, I'm feeling good. But uh, today we do our episode of knockback as we always do. We don't miss any episodes any week regardless. Although I think. We're recording. Are we recording? Let's see. Today is Wednesday. So we're recording this on our usual day. We've been a little bit more wavy on our end recording these, but we're getting them out on time, which is good. And today's episode is actually another fan voted topic over at Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins last stand. You guys can support us to get early ad free access to our show and the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas, etc. Another perk you get over there is to submit topic ideas and vote on other topic ideas. We do one of those a month. One big election and the prestige, the 2006 Christopher Nolan film is the winner this time around. Now, this movie has been nominated many times, so I'm happy to do it with everyone and to do the film with you, Dig, and talk about it because I had actually never seen it. Me and either. Yeah. So it's our, our first time both seeing the film. It's a 2006 film, kind of an earlier Christopher Nolan flick. And we'll get into all of that. We have lots of inquiries from the audience etc. And so on. I do want to ask the audience. I don't often like make a plea like this, but we haven't gotten a lot of reviews recently on iTunes and other podcast services. So if you do like our show, please do leave us nice reviews or nice score ratings on these various platforms, iTunes, etc. It just helps us bubble to the top and find new audiences. We want more people listening to our show. This show in particular, Sacred Symbols is our flagship over at Collins Last Stand, and that's an exceptionally popular show. We always want more listeners to that as well. But I feel like Knockback is the underrated jewel on the crown 
Uh, the redheaded stepchild? Just yeah. say it. It's the CLS redheaded stepchild. Yeah, in a way it's it is. Stop. It's got to stop. This it's nonsense. It's absurd. Yeah, it's an, an knock it off. Yeah, knock. It. <laughs> <laughs> so if you do like our show uh, and you do listen on free feeds, do feel free if you can and if you want to to leave us nice reviews. We do appreciate that. It's very helpful to us. But Dave, how's everything going uh, in your life before we continue onward? You're coming here for Thanksgiving, which was an, an unexpected surprise to hear about. Well, I'm I'm excited because Helene and I, well, we vacillate every year. We have, we usually host Thanksgiving on the off years here at our home for Helene's side of the family, which, you know, we live relatively close to everybody in her family. So they come over and then every other Thanksgiving, we go down to mom's, to Virginia. Mom usually holds court for Thanksgiving. So we go down there. Now we didn't know how it would go with COVID, you know, month, month over month, some months it looked a little bleak. The outlook looked a little bleak for for November, but right now it looks good. It looks okay. So we were happy to, I just wanted to make sure that the family was on the same page that we were coming down. I didn't know, you know, mom and Larry are getting on in age a little bit. They have to take care of themselves. I worry about them a little bit. So I wanted to make sure that one, we could stay there. You know, Helene and I have other options. We could stay with Allie. We could stay with you. I think Dana has guests staying over that period already. So I just wanted to make sure all our I's were dotted and T's were crossed. But yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to go down. I know the kids, you know, our kids, Lillian and Graydon, miss everybody down there. It's especially important to them. I could take it or leave it. I'll be completely honest with you. No, I'm teasing. Of course, we all miss everybody. So we're excited to come down for Thanksgiving. That's sort of the light at the end of the tunnel right now that we're working towards is just going away for Thanksgiving and being with everybody. And, you know, just grinding here in the meantime, out here in PA, I was just thinking about a few things outside. Usually when we record around this time on Wednesday, our landscapers come at the exact same time. So I'm waiting for the lawnmowers to start. I wonder if anybody's heard that in the background. I want, Dustin usually does his magic and I, I don't always get to listen right away when we record, like when an episode goes up, but I've never heard any snafus or anything like that, but I'm just thinking they should show up imminently, the landscapers. But besides that, just a normal week getting through it, hump day. And this is always a this is always a bright spot in my week is recording recording the show with you. And this is a fun topic. You know, spoiled brats, another fan chosen topic that Colin and I will be discussing today. I'm excited to get into it. Now, Kyle, do you mind? I just want to get into our opening a little bit. We don't have a proper opening this week. Okay. But yeah, just in talking about fan versus fan, let me do this before I forget. Now, fan versus fan round two, our ultimate final round. Our final fight for the fan versus fan topic is coming up. But, and you know, I got to say, round two is going to be a lot of fun. It's incoming, like a hot, deep pinned grenade of wow. poetry. But I actually took a bit of time before the show today, Kyle, to take, sort of take inventory and finish thinking through how we'll end this thing now, how we're going to wrap it up. So here's the master plan as I see it, without giving away too much just yet. There'll be some surprises next week. But, so as I see it, currently we have two more weeks. Next week will be a week of hand-selecting our finalists, and there'll be a secret reveal during that whole thing. And finalists is plural. Make sure you pay attention to that. Are you, are you watching closely? Are you, <laughs> are you listening closely? Yes. And the following week, Kyle, our final week, the week after that, will be the week of reckoning. Finally where our 
Finalists will battle it out for ultimate supremacy. And then, of course, we'll finish it off as we did all along with a final Twitter poll, after which bragging rights and prizes will rain down like refreshing droplets of sweet, sweet victory. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you have but no anyway, idea so what we have two saying. more yeah. weeks. Next week will be a full segment. Well, it won't take too long, actually. It should only take about five minutes or so, I think. No longer. We're going to choose our finalists. Little surprise in there. We'll we'll kind of wheedle into the into the mix, and then right after that, the second week, two weeks from now, we'll have our final fan versus fan showdown. So that's it. That's it for the opening. And you know, sorry for these bye weeks, but we have some excitement to look forward to now, starting with next week as we wrap up our. Um, I think our final Twitter poll is up right now for our week ten voting. So you guys could go up on Twitter and vote for the week ten winner, and then next week we start round two. And the rest, as they say, will be history, my friend. Well, that's very nice. I'm very excited for you and uh, happy for the audience. I'm, I'm glad that you were able to see this all the way through. And, you know, always exciting to have a nice little opening segment to whet the whistle. Whet Damn. the whistle. Well, well done. Thank you. So well done. Well done. <laughs> well done. <laughs> So let me see here now, Dagan. Today's topic, as we said, is The Prestige, the Christopher Nolan film. This was released in October and November of 2006, depending on where in the world you are. It's a little over two hours long in runtime, and it was made for a modest budget of $40 million, and it made a modest amount of money for a Christopher Nolan film, about $110 million at the box office. So a nice little success Mm. for Christopher Nolan, but certainly not the success he would later become accustomed to with the Batman movies and Interstellar and all the others. Now, this movie is all about magic, and I am glad to have seen it. This is a movie that has been hyped up for some time now. Ever really, you know, I fell in love with Christopher Nolan as a filmmaker, being kind of a layman with film, obviously. I fell in love with him during the Batman trilogy, and obviously Interstellar was kind of the movie that really sealed his greatness to me. I, I And his brother, Jonathan Nolan, of course, who wrote that movie and wrote The Prestige, just as wonderful filmmakers and someone who's really right up my alley and kind of has this mysterious bent to him and, and very layered storytelling and very layered filmmaking. I'm really quite an appreciator of his. And The Prestige, as far as I know, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at let me see. I'm, I want to scroll down to make sure I'm not forgetting it here. I'm on Christopher Nolan's uh, filmography here. I've seen now every one of these movies, I think, with the exception of following, which I have never seen. That was his first film. And that's yes. like a, that's like an independent crime film. I've, I never saw that. But everything else from Memento through. Well, actually, I didn't see Tenet yet because that's not out on VOD, but that's out now as well. And I'm waiting for that. But I've seen all of his films now, so it's kind of nice to get into it. In toward in in, uh, in terms of a, a larger catalog, but in terms of this movie itself, this is basically his fourth major film. He did this right after Batman Begins, and it was supposed to actually happen before that, but it's after Memento, of course, which put him on the map. But again, this movie is a little bit strange, even for him, I think, along with Dunkirk. I think that's another one of his weird movies. But since the movie's all about magic, I actually wanted to start with this question from our audience from Daniel Pham, who wrote into us and said, hi, guys. The Prestige is one of my all-time favorite movies for the way it so satisfyingly presents its narrative. Watching the plot unfold was like witnessing a magic trick in itself due to the complex metastructure of the film. However, my question is whether either of you guys are magic fans in general. Did you already have an interest in magic? Did you at some point attempt to learn tricks of your own? 
things can keep in bringing the magic of knockback to all of us. Thank you, Daniel. Oh, thanks, Daniel. So I'm curious about your answer to this day before we even get into the film. Are you a fan of like illusions and magic and and all of this kind of stuff? Uh, sleight of hand and all of this, because I have to be honest, I, I have no interest in this in this at all. And so I was kind of going into it a little bit blind. What do you think? Yeah, you know, it's funny. This was something I had written down to ask you about as well. Cause I, and it's one of those things I really wasn't sure. You know everything. You think you know everything about your brothers, you know, about your siblings and everything. But I was like, I wonder where Colin stands on magic. Does he have any interest in it? It's funny. Same as you, I think. It's always been something that's off my radar of interest. And I never was particularly interested in it. I mean, I think I'm as mystified as the next guy or girl when it comes to magic. You see guys. We grew up with seeing guys on TV. And now, since, you know, the late 90s, early aughts, you have the Penn and Tellers, you have, well, they span back even further, but to the 80s especially, but you have the David Blaines and all the Las Vegasy type of illusionists and escape artists and everything. It's very interesting, but I've never really gone down a rabbit hole of trying to explore, you know, how the tricks are done and the, the origins of the various magicians or illusionists, whatever you want to call them. One thing that I was re- that I've been really interested in, though, is that comes sort of on and off for me. I kind of for- always forget to research it further is just Harry Houdini in general. You know, the idea of that age, that era and escape artists, earlier magicians and illusionists and everything. I really don't know much about those people. And I remember going I, I must have been in fourth or fifth grade and we learned a little something about that specific time period and Harry Houdini was part of that. And that was probably the last time that little snippet of time, that few days within that week of school, elementary school, where I learned about Harry Houdini. And it did seem very interesting to me, that whole Victorian age, or at least that era in the United States as well. And the way these performers sort of did their thing. And I guess how it dovetailed later with vaudeville and all that kind of stuff. Very interesting. You know, pre, pre-motion pre picture, really. Pre-motion picture entertainment, I guess you could call it. But I never really went down to explore any of it. And I really didn't know anybody save one person in my life, this guy, Zach, who I went to college with, who I actually later, incidentally, worked at my first job at Funny Bone Interactive up in Connecticut. He was an animator, too. He was really interested in magic. He was almost like a professional caliber magician i don't know how he came onto it i don't know his origins with magic but he was really really into it and he was really really good and he would show us card tricks sometimes and you know he would just leave us mystified like completely baffled and awestruck but he was sort of a friend of a friend you know that kind of acquaintance so he wasn't always around my social spheres but that's really the only person who ever knew that had any kind of interest in it so it's actually nice for me because it's it's an area that not only is it a movie that you and I haven't haven't seen prior to researching it for the for the episode, but it's also an area I don't know too much about. So I could come in without a lot of preconceived judgments or knowledge and just try to explore a little bit about it. Now, one thing I, I have to say, Kyle, I thought this movie was going to I knew it was going to center on stage magicians. Right. But I, I knew it was going to be, you know, sort of the Victorian era. But I didn't know or what I didn't anticipate was how it would sort of candidly admit that magic is all stagecraft and performance. I thought it would deal a little bit more in the mystical and the mysterious for some reason and deal with the likes of like Harry Houdini types 
and, you know, the escape artists and that type of fare. But as it turns out, you know, it's basically a story dealing with passion and obsession and competition. And it shows the great lengths that people will go to and what they're capable of and what they can be driven to, I guess you could say, when they want to be the best at something. And that's for me, that's what really got the hooks in. It shows that mania that can take hold when people are driven by, you know, this singular obsession, no matter what it is. In this case, it's magic and, and their craft is performing magic on stage. And also the damage that it can leave in its wake for the people around them, you know, the damage that it could be caused as a result of that fixation and that compulsion and how the people around them could suffer via the fallout. So what I, what I wasn't really, I, it's not that I thought the movie was going to be bad. It's Chris Nolan and we love him. And of course we've already done the dark Knight trilogy and interstellar and inception. So you guys are huge Christopher Nolan fans, just like we are. Obviously I knew the movie was going to be good, but what I wasn't expecting was that human side of the story. And I think that's what, what I really enjoyed about it. And that really kind of surprised me that it really centered on that, you know, that sort of human conflict, whether it was revenge or compulsion, obsession, passion, you know, passion at great, you know, to what heights. And so it was really, and I have to say, I watched it three times. Well, I watched it two times all the way through. I don't want to cheat. The third time I watched it was probably, I jumped around, you know, for, you know, things that I thought maybe I missed or things I could use a little bit more boning up on. But I really, I got to say, I really loved it. And Christopher Nolan hasn't done us wrong yet. And I can't wait to break it down even further. Talk about it with you, with you guys. Yeah, I'm in a similar boat where it's funny. It's funny you bring up Houdini because I was reading about him not too long ago, too, in response to this film. And I was actually kind of taken aback by his visual aesthetic, Houdini. Like there are awesome pictures of him that I feel like you would have you would see on like Rolling Stone or something today. Like really very forward looking pictures of him, like staring at the camera in like a straight jacket with like locks all over him. And he's got this really awesome stare. And I'm like, wow, this guy is really, you know, pretty ahead of his time in terms of marketing himself, because you don't often see those kinds of pictures with that kind of aesthetic. So I was kind of blown away by that. And also his like complete falling out with his namesake, the French, I guess, illusionist uh, Houdin and uh, all that. It's really interesting uh, to read about him. But. Yeah, I'm not a huge magic guy. I mean, I'm just not. I, I was never interested in magic. You know, when you're a little kid, you have the magicians at parties or school or whatever. And illusion. I don't <laughs> right. know. I just never got into it. It's funny how there's like a difference between, I guess, the magic that is real, like illusion and all of that in real life. And then I guess more as nerds, the magic that we grow up in with with Dungeons and Dragons and video games where you think about casting fire spells and all that that's kind of the magic i wish existed that i think would be much cooler than than the you know or making you faster casting haste on you or something it's it's weird how illusion and magic went from and at least a lot of our minds as nerds went from something that was a little more quaint like this where everyone knew they were being tricked i mean that's what the movie is really about is that everyone knows that it's not real and it's about this one trick that they can't explain but it's funny how magic has just segued into this thing that uses magic points for me and you cast stronger and stronger magic on enemies that are weak to that type of magic or whatever. That's like the entire makeup of it to me in my mind. Now, I, I've never gone to like a real magician show or like a real high class magic act or anything like that. So I guess I can't speak to it too much, but I've just never been 
interested in it. I have been watching a lot of James Randi lately, and this was unrelated to uh, watching the prestige. James Randi is like a famous magician. He's really old now. He's in his 90s, but he's most famous for debunking people who claim that they have psychic powers and all this kind of stuff. Most notably, Yuri Geller, the who I think is an Israeli illusionist and they're like decades long fight with each other. It's really interesting. So that's cool stuff. It's but awesome. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like James Randi, I, I fell down the James Randi YouTube hole for a long time. I'm just watching his videos. He's a really fascinating dude. And he's all about like believing what you see and and all of this. But that's about as much as exposure as I have to it. So watching this film was, I guess, somewhat educational, whether or not it's real or not. I mean, obviously, it's not real, but whether or not it's kind of indicative of that late 19th century Victorian era in England in terms of people going to shows and seeing all this stuff. It was kind of a nice introduction to that for me. And I uh, I enjoyed the film, I have to say, and I want to throw it over to you before I answer. I mean, what did you think of the film? Did you did you enjoy it? I really did. I really liked it. The performances are great across the board. I love well, we'll break down the performances player by player soon. But I really I really did. I really, really enjoyed it. And I was going the first time I watched it. Yeah, it's probably like a week and a half ago now, I guess, something like that. And I sat down to watch it and I was just really cranky and I didn't want to do anything. And I was sort of uh, being obstinate, you know, kind of went in with my arms crossed, almost like you would watch a Star Wars movie type thing. And you know what? I re- I don't for whatever reason. And I really the movie broke me down very quick. You know, it was like I got into it really, really quick. And I think Christopher Nolan talks about that in certain, you know, I went down a big Christopher Nolan rabbit hole again with this, even though we've talked about him multiple times on the show. Just in going down and seeing, you know, watching various interviews and movie panels and talk shows and lectures. I even watched a commencement speech he did at Princeton, I think, in 2015. And he talked about at one point that a movie should capture you like within the first couple minutes. Like, you know, I think it might have been him and Michael Caine in conversation where they were saying like they were in accordance that, you know, if, if you're 10 minutes into a movie and it still doesn't have its its claws in you then it's not gonna happen you know it's not it, it just has to that movie has to resonate within a very quick period of time and this this movie did i really really liked it and it did bear multiple uh viewings within close proximity to each other too i enjoyed it back to you know back to back and even a third time as i said just in watching bits and pieces and you know it holds up and i think christopher nolan talks about too like which is really interesting, which I never knew was his philosophy before, that he talks about movies and how they changed. First of all, he's only a year or two older than me, which is kind of depressing. But that's another story for another time. He talks about growing up, I think, when Star Wars came out, he was seven. And he talked about how movies really changed in the late 70s to, to early 80s, I guess, with the advent of home video especially. And I would argue also with the the advent of the Showtimes and the HBOs where... And this is a great point that I never really thought about before that around that time is when people started watching movies multiple times because they could previously to that, if you saw a movie twice, it was considered a lot. So he sort of crafts movies with repeated viewing in mind and, you know, hence all the stuff that's woven in and all the mystery and things that are, you know, the layering and the depth and the texture and everything like that. And you could see that in all his movies. Of course, we think about a movie like Inception, which is especially the case with a movie like that. But this movie has that in droves, you know, where you could actually rewatch it and get something on every repeated viewing, something that you missed the previous time. And I love that he actually purposely crafts his movies like that, where it gives you it's also very clever 
in a money making capacity, but the way he terms it is that, you know, it gives you, it gives the audience, it gives the viewer something to sink their teeth into with every repeated watching that this movie is made to watch more than once. And in order to gain a complete understanding of everything that's in the movie, you have to watch it multiple times, however many times. So I love that. And I think this movie really captures that. It's and it's it left me, you know, it was one of those movies that left me thinking, like, what was I waiting for? Like, how did I how did I even miss this? Right. Now, what about you? How did you what and where also where do you rank it? It's kind of hard to rank because it's so different than his other sure. movies. He he tends to jump around in terms of theme and even, you know, stylistically and all that kind of stuff, genre. But where do you leave it, you know, compared to his other films? How did you dig it compared to everything else that you love that he's done? He's done. Yeah. So actually, it's funny you brought this up because Greg Hayden wrote, wrote into us about this and said, after finally watching this, where do you guys have it in your Nolan power ranking? He's uh, <laughs> he's number one for or this is number one for Greg. I think this is one of his weaker films. I got to be honest. I, I I'm glad I watched it. I really like it. I don't see the hype behind it compared to a lot of his other films. I think this is. You know, if you're comparing it directly, as you just asked and as Greg asked in his letter, are you comparing it to other Nolan films? I don't think this film even holds a candle to Interstellar or something like that. So uh, I think it's a really, really great film. I'm, I think it has wonderful performances. I love the story. I love Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan's feel of this era. I think that they do a really nice job of capturing late 19th century England and late 19th century London, which I think is such a fascinating place. And I wrote a lot of notes about that. I wanted to talk about that, but I don't know. I just didn't find it that riveting. And I found it, I guess people kind of considered interstellar similarly, where I found it confusing at the end. I actually had to read about it today because after I watched it, I went to, you know, I slept on it and I was like, I'll think about it. I, I'm like, I don't really even understand what the hell happened to be honest with you. And <laughs> it does leave it like that. <laughs> and so I had, I had to read like some synopses and I'm like, oh, oh, OK. All right. So I like those kinds of films. That's what Christopher Nolan does. I'm sure Tenet will be the same way, but or is the same way. I just haven't seen it, as I said. So I would put it below Interstellar. I'd put it below Dunkirk. I'd put it below two of the three Batman movies. Maybe it's better than Batman Begins. I'd put Memento ahead of it. So I, I don't really I don't know that I think it's like one of the great Nolan films. And it seems to be kind of reflected in the way it's talked about. A lot of people in the in our audience love it because they're in the film. And a lot of I know a lot of film buffs love this movie. But I think the box office gross of this film kind of speaks for itself. It wasn't that big of a, a hit making a hundred million dollars on a 40 million dollar budget is really not very impressive. So it wasn't like it was a movie that had great word of mouth. If you remember uh, with Interstellar, I mean, Interstellar stayed in the theater forever. I, I'm pretty sure. I got to, I'm going to look this up actually really quick or Inception, obviously, I think is a better film as well. Yeah, like Interstellar made seven hundred million dollars, you know, so wow. pretty much seven times more money, uh, you know, Huge. not even eight years later. And obviously Inception, I think, even made more. Yeah. Inception made eight hundred and forty million. So I'm not trying to judge. I mean, I would be thrilled to make a movie for forty million dollars and make one hundred and twenty million dollars. I'm no, no doubt about it, but. Even if you do the old trick of doubling the budget for marketing and distribution and all of that, that's still a nice, tidy 30 or 40 million dollar uh, profit. But I'm just saying I don't think I, I hold it amongst his very great films. Where where do you put it in terms of everything from, I would say, Memento to Dunkirk? I mean, you've seen all of them. So where do you hold it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's interesting looking at. Nolan's filmography. I mean, you could chalk this up in 2006 to still growing 
as a filmmaker, still making his bones, still learning. And if you look at Memento in 2000 and Insomnia in 2002, those are both very small feeling, indie-esque, more character study pieces than when his movies start to to become big set piece type movies like the Batman trilogy, of course, and Inception and Interstellar, which I think is a nice combination of that human, you know, that human study, the character study and the blockbuster type thing. I think that's why Interstellar is so special. But what I like about the prestige, it does go back to sort of a character study. The characters are a little more fleshed out than you would typically get in something like, you know, Inception where it's more about, you know, the characters are there, the performances are there, but you don't get a lot of texture to the characters. You don't get a lot of background, what makes them tick. They're just sort of vehicles for the story, which works too. I'm not saying it doesn't work. It's interesting how, how he could kind of jump around and make both of those formulas work so successfully. But that's what I like about The Prestige. It got a little more into the characters, the performances. I felt, I felt like it was a little more grounded and it was a little less obsessed just a little bit less obsessed with the set piece type thing. You do have the Nikola Tesla, the the electricity, the contraptions, the gadgets. You have, you know, the big stage show, tank of water type of thing. So there's a little bit of that, but it just let the humanistic side shine through a little more, especially again, like the fallout of these magicians and the people around them and how they have to, you know, they're basically made to suffer because of this competition, because of the revenge, because of the obsession. So I kind of, that's what I really sort of felt, felt myself going in for this time. And I was actually surprised to see that. I, I really thought it was going to be a little mo- bit more, again, like Harry Houdini-esque set piece, escape artist, you know, underwater with the chain wrapped cages and the straight jackets and all that kind of thing. So I was I was happy to see and you know even getting a little bit more warmth from we'll talk about the performances again the players but from guys like Christian Bale and trying to figure out what made him work in this movie and stuff and Hugh Jackman who's not a typical Christopher Nolan you know not in the cr- typical Christopher Nolan stable of actors so there was a lot of treats in it for me that were a little bit far off the beaten path of the typical what you would call the typical Nolan-esque Stuff And it's also nice to see that he could jump around in genre like this. And I know how long it took them to make this work for him and his brother to make the screenplay work and how long they worked on it and sort of massaged it and finessed it. And yeah, I really, I really did enjoy it. I mean, I put it probably below the Dark Knight trilogy and Inception and Interstellar. I've only seen Dunkirk the one time, but I remember how massive that movie felt. And of course, Tom Hardy, you know, I love him. But maybe below those movies, but maybe before Memento and Insomnia. So maybe similar to you where I would kind of wedge it in there. Definitely, I, I definitely for those of you guys who haven't seen it, definitely I would consider it a must watch for sure. So the one thing I didn't know about this film until I read about it and I didn't even see it in the credits, although maybe I just wasn't paying very close attention in the beginning or I was watching other stuff. But this is based on a 1995 novel by an author named Christopher Priest called The Prestige. And I didn't realize that it's a total adaptation. So, yeah, uh, Jonathan Nolan, as I said, Christopher Nolan's longtime uh, collaborator. And obviously his brother is the one who really massaged the screenplay over years. As you said, they were really wanted to get this done before Batman. And they ended up getting it done after the first Batman movie. So this is a year after they went pretty quick. I think Batman wrapped up in 94 or 2004 came out in 2005. And then this was, I think, filmed in 2005 and 2006 and released later that year. So they went pretty quick. 
And I really feel like the movie, if the movie does something interesting, or I should say it does a lot of interesting things, but if it, if it does something more interesting than other things, I really think it's kind of the zeitgeist of being in that era because I just think it's such a fascinating time, especially in England and the way entertainment works and all of that. And I want to talk a little bit about that later. I won't talk about that right now because I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense until we introduce what the film's really about. So I wanted to throw it over to you, Dig, and tell and if, see if you can tell me what this film's about. I mean, give me a little bit of a synopsis so we can begin to jump into it. So we're set in 1890s London, and the story basically sets on, you know, kind of centers around two, of course I lost my whole page now, two, I guess you would call them shills or magician's apprentices. They're basically junior magicians or assistants that will go on to compete for, you know, to compete on the stage. They're but they're basically budding ma- magicians that end up entrenched in this competition, mentored by this singular guy who's sort of an engineer, a magician's engineer, or what they call an ingenieur. And basically the story kind of takes place from there, where it's basically a competition between two rival magicians during this Victorian era in London, and how it plays out, how that competition and how that passion and that paranoia, I guess, and their obsessions sort of affect not only their relationship, but everybody around them. I think that's a I think that's a fair place to start. Yeah, I think so, too. I, what I really love about this film is actually that it breaks down the act of magic or conducting magic and illusion by separating the performers from the people who design them and design the tricks. And I didn't really know that that was a thing. So, again, being very ignorant about the world of magic. I just didn't know that there were people behind the scenes designing these different tricks. But that's where the character of John Cutter comes in. Michael Caine's character. I mean, what can you say about Michael Caine? Wonderful performer and does a great job here. Obviously, the two performers, the two magicians are Alfred Borden, the professor, and then Robert Angier, the great Danton, played respectively by Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman. Christian Bale, of course, in the stable of... Nolan actors Hugh Jackman not so much so it was cool and interesting to see him in here I, I didn't even know that he was in this movie I, I guess I just didn't really when I saw him up there I was like oh Hugh, Hugh Jackman by the way this is Hugh Jack I mean Hugh Jackman is very famous now but this was kind of in a more embryonic state of Hugh Jackman I mean this is when he was just getting into X-Men and playing Wolverine yeah. obviously and Logan and Van Helsing so very well known for that and all of this while Christian Bale of course we knew from Swing Kids back in the day I fucking love that movie and of course American Psycho is where he became really famous He's in the Batman trilogy as Batman. He's in the wonderful film, The Big Short. Most recently, I was reading he did Ford versus Ferrari, which I still have not seen, but I've heard. I haven't seen that either. It surprises me because you're such a car guy. It surprises me you haven't seen that. So, yeah, you set it up wonderfully. And it's about these two competing mages and John Cutter, who kind of creates magic uh, tricks for both of them. And then, of course, there are various love interests as well. You have Rebecca Hall playing Sarah Borden, who we don't see too much of because she passes away in the film. You have Piper Perabo, who plays. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Sarah Borden lives. Piper Perabo plays Julia McCullough, who, who's the one who dies. And then, of course, Scarlett right. Johansson it plays Olivia Wenscombe, who has a much larger role and all of this. And, of course, we have other really surprise, I mean, some surprise faces in this, including Andy Serkis. And I think more surprisingly, I didn't know David Bowie's in this film. R.I.P. So really interesting cast of characters here. 
I would say that this is probably the most one of the most interesting casts that Nolan has put together because it has some of his dudes in it, but it also doesn't have some of his people in it. Some people that. He yeah, I agree. Wants. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right. Now, we have a lot to talk about here because, again, talking about Nolan films, we learned this when we did Interstellar and Inception. Kind of hard to talk about in a really coherent way. So we're going to do the very best that we can here. And we'll, of course, guide ourselves by using your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas that you submitted on Patreon so kindly. So one of these things I really loved about the, the word or the term, the prestige, is the idea of the pledge, the turn and the prestige which is something that's introduced by John Cutter at the very beginning of the film. I'm wondering if you can explain to me or explain to the audience what that means, the pledge, the turn and the prestige and kind of the order of operations in conducting convincing magic to a late 19th century savvy and somewhat sophisticated London audience. I I really love the way the movie sort of centers on this idea and how the magician performs his craft, which was really interesting to me because I never really thought of it this way before. And how it's, you know, every part hinges on the part preceding it. So the pledge, Kyle, is step one in a magician's act or his, yeah, his act or his show, I guess you could say. So the pledge is when the magician ostensibly shows you something ordinary, presents something ordinary to the audience. Now, number two, the turn is when the magician or the illusionist takes that ordinary something and makes it extraordinary. So presenting now, you know, setting up the trick, setting up the awe or the wonder to come. And then the prestige is basically pulling off the trick successfully and striking awe in the audience. We're leaving the audience dumbfounded, slack jawed, and in a, you know, a true sense of wonder. So you have the pledge, the turn, and the prestige and every successful magic act or every magic show that goes off without a hitch is built upon each one of those steps coming off successfully in succession. And I love I love seeing that play out on screen and the way these two magicians, these two budding in the beginning of the film, budding magicians and sort of rival illusionists, how everything in their life Every single breath they take, every everything they do, out even outside of the theater, even outside of those hallowed halls of performing, is all in order to pull off the show successfully and become the the best act, you know, and and also also to sort of debunk or minimize your competition in order in, in order to make your competition look like shit is, you know, and be the talk of the town and everything they do, you know, in their obsession plays into that. So everything that they, everything that they, they, every, every part of them is put into their act and that's all that matters. And it's just amazing to see that. It's just amazing to see these two performers doing whatever it takes in order to 
basically win over the audience. Yeah, it's it's an interesting stagecraft, and I really enjoyed learning more about it because I assume it's realistic in some way. I mean, I don't think the Nikola Tesla stuff is realistic, but <laughs> although I do love Tesla's inclusion, Tesla, for some reason, is a really attractive character to put into fiction. Lots of people do it. And because he was a little crazy and he had obviously this rivalry with Thomas Edison, which is kind of a red herring in this film in a way. But he had a lot of theories about how electricity worked and they actually get got into that. I think Tesla was the one who pioneered the idea of wireless electricity and they show that. I mean, it didn't actually end up happening, but or at least not yet, but that they show that in like why they're in Colorado Springs and all of that with uh, Andy Serkis's character, Mr. Alley. So I did dig that whole inclusion of it. But from the stagecraft aspect, like not stuff happening in the U.S., but stuff happening in England at this time in the movie. I'm real wrapped up in it, too. I I love the idea of competing magicians and outdoing each other. And of course, the core sort of theme of this movie, which I think is obsession, right? Of of course, rivalry and sacrifice and all that are in there. But it's about the movie, I think, is about being obsessed and how that can consume you and how it can backfire on you and then backfire on you again and then backfire on the other person and then backfire. And that's obviously where the movie gets a little crazy at the end. And I didn't really quite understand what was going on at some point. Uh, but <laughs> but I assume a lot of people didn't. I mean, I can't be alone in that. I assume a lot of people had no idea what was going on at the end of the movie. I'm with you on that. The only movie I really understood fully at the end was Interstellar with the Tesseract and stuff. And I think that a lot of that was just because I'm so into that stuff that I've read about it. But I was confused as shit by a lot of other stuff with in- Inception and obviously this film. But that's the way it goes. So let's talk a little bit about some of these characters here. We'll start with Alfred Borden, the professor, Christian Bale. Tell me a little bit about this character, this performance. I thought he did a really nice job. I I, I have a hard time so- sometimes separating the apparent reality that Christian Bale is not a very nice person sometimes. He, obviously, <laughs> he had that set meltdown, that famous set meltdown. Who knows if that's indicative of who he is or not, but it certainly painted a picture, uh, an impression of, of who he is. So I always see that when I see him on, on stage which or on a f- screen, which is a little bit unfortunate. But nonetheless, this character of the professor is interesting and it ends up being much deeper than it seems with uh, his twin Fallon and all of this, which we find out later. But talk to me a little bit about Alfred Borden, the professor, and what you think about Christian Pale's uh, performance. Yeah, you know, it's fu- we talked about Christian Bell at length during our Batman trilogy discussion our dark our dark knight trilogy discussion and yeah you know it's it's a shame when an actor is sort of his, his performance and how you how you read him on screen is affected by how you know he is in real life and his reputation and his various outbursts or behaving badly that you know unfortunately for him was captured on camera audio and sometimes on camera and also the roles he plays you know too we think of american psycho and things that are a little bit less awesome performances but not you know, very particularly unsavory, I guess you could say, performances. But I liked him a lot in this. And I have to think, of course, he plays one of our two main rival magicians. And it struck me, Kyle. Now, I, I looked at Christian Bell's biography during the week or over the weekend and his filmography, I should say. And he's done a lot, obviously. And I haven't seen everything but this is the only film I recall anyway, for at least what I've seen, where he actually plays a father. And I think that might be what warms him up a little bit in this role. Also, he's kind of construed to be the more evil 
of the magicians, I think it's fair to say, at least from the beginning, from the outset. And it turns out that maybe he's not the one that's, you know, he's he's not the one that's um, basic, the most egregious, committing the most egregious behavior, I, could, I think it's fair to say, as it turns out. And he's also got a little more to lose and that he's got a little girl and everything like that. But I think it warms him up in the role. The other interesting thing I thought that the movie did was that it presents these two rival illusionists, these two rival stage magicians, as one being the ver- the extremely gifted magician, which is the Christian Bale character, the Alfred Borden character, and the other being the sort of God-given, talented, natural showman, which is the Hugh Jackman character or the great Danton character. And it's interesting because if these, these two complement each other for what they do if you mesh their two skill sets you would have this unstoppable performer but instead they choose the route of becoming adversaries one being exceptionally good at one thing and one being naturally gifted at the other thing and that's what makes the that's one of the things that makes the relationship and their antagonistic i would say frenemy type relationship at least from the outset that's what makes it really interesting is one's really good at one thing and one's really good at good at the other thing and the mentor character the the cutter character tries to bring that to their attention early on and they choose to ignore it and just be, basically become adversaries and that's what's really what's really striking to me also how well Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman they have a great chemistry they're really good together i mean it's so nice to see Hugh Jackman not playing Wolverine as much as I love the X-Men and everything, it's nice to see him outside of that. I know he's done other things, but he's almost to that degree. You know, he was almost becoming that. You couldn't think of Hugh Jackman without thinking of Wolverine. I know he's walked away from that now and wants to try other things. And that's why, you know, especially why Christopher Nolan wanted to cast him early on 15 years ago, because he saw that in Hugh Jackman. He saw something that was as of yet untapped in that actor. But Christian Bale really brought it. I really liked him in this. I liked him all the way up through the ending. I love the, the, you know, the big reveal at the end. And I have to say, Kyle, as you mentioned, the twin character, the Fallon character, who's supposed to be the assistant or the right-hand man to the Alfred Borden character, the Alfred, yeah, the Alfred Borden character. I have to say, when the reveal of the twin character, I didn't see Christian Bale in there. Now, we talk about illusion we talk about sleight of hand and looking for the wrong thing and being fooled and being duped by the magician but i didn't see i had to ask you i wanted to ask you that i didn't see christian bale behind Fallon. now he has the derby and the glasses and the bushy mustache and maybe i was looking in the wrong places but i personally didn't see christian bale behind there so i was surprised by that at the end were you Equally a surprise, or did you see it? Did you know it was coming? No, I had no idea. I mean, I'm I'm really bad with these films at seeing what's happening. You know, a lot of people we always talk about your wife being good at this, but we she is good at that. Yeah, but yeah. I'm really bad at it. I just I very rarely see what's going to happen or what's happening, whether it's an M Night movie mystery type movie like that or Christopher Nolan's kind of in the same camp. I mean, I think he's a more talented filmmaker than M Night. Although I love M Night a lot, but they're in the same. Hitchcockian or Twilight Zone uh, type thing where they're trying to they when you have to watch things in reverse in order to see what's happening. It's a really clever form of filmmaking. There's a lot of stuff in this movie that lets you know what's happening if you just pay close enough attention. But it just it happens so quickly and so much that you don't realize 
for instance, Christian Bale loving his wife one day and not loving his wife the next day and stuff like there's a lot of oh, really interesting. So good. And there's really a lot of really interesting, cool tell. So with Fallon, even though he comes up actually pretty often and he's in, like, I didn't see it at all. And what I really like about that, I, and I, I don't know if this was intended as irony, I, I kind of feel it is, is that it ends up being that John Cutter finds Hugh Jackman or Robert Angier a body double, basically, so they can execute the trick the exact way that Borden is executing it, although uh, Angier doesn't believe that it's being executed that way. So it's a kind of a, an interesting piece of irony. They find that drunk guy that basically, you know, works for them <laughs> as a great stage actor or whatever and a method actor. And it's just ironic that even that little piece of filmmaking is important in the end because it actually is foreshadowing what's going on in reality with the other character. They actually stumbled upon the solution and yet didn't believe that that was what was happening. Even though exactly. John Cutter has been saying the entire time, that's exactly what he's doing. He's got a body double. They didn't realize that it was actually his twin, though. And I do love how they they show it a little bit about how one plays one character one day and the other the next. And of course, the Julia McCullough character can see right through it and knows all these things. And is kind of astute enough to realize what's happening and that Fallon is really in love with Olivia but Alfred's really in love with Julia and all this. So it's there's a lot there. It, it seems like he's having an affair, basically, but he's really not. It's all about kind of the unreliable narrator. You're only seeing, of course, what the filmmaker wants you to see and not the entire story, because if we saw the entire story from the beginning, we would know two seconds in that these guys are the same person. Right. So, exactly. So I really dug that that kind of that turning on its head that we always make fun of the term now with Ryan Johnson, but the subverting of expectations, it, it, it is a subversion of expectations to kind of do that. I think it's really nice and beautiful layered filmmaking or screenwriting. Although again, because this is inspired so deeply by a book, it's hard to know who who's really responsible for this, for this level of storytelling. I know that they left some stuff out, but I think it's pretty much intact. So, so maybe more, maybe more props indeed to the author who I wrote down here. What I want to give him a shout out again, Christopher Priest, who wrote the book twenty five years ago. And again, I didn't. I read wanted it. to I, listen to the audio book, yeah. but I just didn't. I just didn't have the time. But yeah, I wanted to see how much of that was, you know, how much of this film was, or how much of the book was in the film. But I didn't. I didn't get a chance. But it's on, it's definitely on the short list. I'd like to check it out. Yeah, I just didn't know that it was based on a book. I have no idea why I didn't know that. It never came up, I guess, or I just didn't read it. But apparently uh, the author was quite fond of the screenplay and gave his blessing and all that, obviously, because they optioned it, I think, in the late 90s or early 2000s. It took him a few years to get made as it often works that way. But since we're talking about this great Danton character now, Hugh Jackman's performance, Robert Angier, uh, Lord Caldo or Cadlo as well. What do you think of? I really love how he takes the, the name of his wife that his wife wanted to give him. He didn't like it. The great Danton. It sounds kind of even at that time in the 1890s, the mid 1890s, old timey. But Sarah Borden dies, obviously, in this accident when they're on stage acting as, I guess, the Patsies or whatever. And or shills, I guess they're called not Patsies. Shills, I guess, is the proper terminology for uh, plants in the audience. I love how he kisses her leg and stuff like that when he's putting the uh, and you don't know. You think he's being like skeevy, right? When you first see it, you don't know that they even know at each first. Other. Yeah. yeah, which is cool. But she smiles knowingly and stuff. And so, again, watching it in reverse, you can see a lot of this stuff being opened up. But what did you make of kind of the death of the, the wife and how it all worked out? I, I really loved how 
obviously this changes Angier's character and makes him really makes him kind of the antagonist in some way. He's he becomes almost villainous and obsessed. Obviously, Bale is obsessed. Uh, Borden's obsessed as well. But it's interesting that they're talking about these knots being tied and all of this. And then you're wondering why Borden won't admit that he tied the knot. But he really doesn't know because it wasn't him at the time. I guess it was Fallon, presumably, that tied that right. knot. That's so, right, right. So what do you think about that whole falling apart with them? I, I really it's it's quite dark because. I would imagine and I haven't read about this at all, but I would imagine these kinds of tricks are very dangerous. I mean, we talk about evil Knievel and everything. I mean, he's more of a stuntman, but even like sawing women in half and putting them the great escape stuff that Houdini did. I mean, I think Houdini used to put himself in like milk jugs, like the big milk things that you would leave outside of your stoop. Oh, wow. And, and then because he was like I was reading about how Houdini was like obsessed with not being copied, apparently. And so when people would copy his stagecraft, he would just one up it. So like he would hang himself upside down in the straight jacket or he would lock himself <laughs> in water amazing. and he could hold his breath for three minutes, apparently. And and all of this kind of stuff. So a lot of this, uh, it makes me really want to read more about Houdini uh, more than anything. I think that's what I walked away from with this film, to be honest. But what did you think about that scene? I felt like it was such a startling scene. John Cutter, obviously, Michael Caine puts on a great performance there, but it was interesting to see Borden die Sarah Borden die Rebecca Hall's character because you kind of assumed that she was going to be part of this she was like kind of the pretty stagehand that a lot of magicians have she's later replaced obviously by Olivia Wenscombe Scarlett Johansson's character but what did you make of that whole scene I felt like it was a really impactful scene oh definitely I mean so much tension you just know that something could go wrong every single thing is planned out to a T and the smallest thing goes awry and you know this thing could go wrong and it does and even though, you know, talk about Mr. Sleight of Hand and Misdirection and everything. I mean, this movie starts with such bravado in telling you, are you, you know, the, the movie starts with the line, are you watching closely? I mean, it doesn't get much more, you, you know, the, the bravado is kicked into high gear. It doesn't get much more confident than that. And the fact that you're still missing things makes you feel so foolish. But it's just, the movie is done just so where you are really looking in the wrong places at the wrong time, just like you're watching a magician on stage and when this thing happens you're shocked even though you think it could it could happen and the chilling thing for me is in the Robert Angier character and the great Danton character because after this whole thing happens well you know I should say at first you really think the Angier character may be the more moralistic one in the rivalry and that I think it's fair to say at least the way that's the way it played out for me in the first half of the film where you think like the other guy is the more sneaky, the more underhanded, the more capable of committing the atrocity. And the Robert Angier character is a little more, he's upset, just as obsessed, but maybe a little more grounded, maybe a little more, has a little more moralistic value. And it turns out that it's very, it takes a very chilling turn for me because this character is seemingly fueled by the revenge of his wife's death or by avenging his wife's death. But as it turns out, Something either, you know, turns in him or maybe it's fair to argue even all along what really matters to him is not his wife's death, is that he is that he becomes the best magician, that he becomes the unstoppable force up on stage and shuts down his rival. That's what takes center stage for him. That's what takes precedent. That's the only thing that matters. 
it's interesting to watch him sort of have this romantic relationship with his wife, kissing her leg and having the discussion about what his stage name is going to be and that they have this warmth and obviously this love there, but how, and then when she dies, you could see like, okay, that could be his fuel for revenge. And it's understandable why he wants to go after his rival and why he wants to shut his rival down. He has, you know, there's, there's definitely substance there. You know, there's, there's definitely reasoning behind that, but you know, it turns out that all that falls by the wayside and it just becomes about the trick, the trick, the trick. And also not only for his success, but how is his rival doing what he's doing? And that that obsession, that paranoia, sort of trying to protect your own trade secrets while sort of reading, you know, debunking the other guy and learning how he's doing it. And so you could you could always gain the upper hand. And I, that was just a chilling turn for me. The character really surprised me because I thought he was a pretty warm character in the beginning. And he turns out to be, you know, I would say he turns out to be quite antagonistic and quite, really uh, essentially the bad guy. And especially in what, you know, basically committing the atrocity that we haven't got to at the end where he really sort of <laughs> really puts his rival on blast but for me, that's the whole, you know, that's what the the tragic death of the wife kind of fuels that whole storyline. And that's why it's in, that's why it's important. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because it's unclear exactly what his motive is if he becomes the true antagonist at this point. And if you really because it, it indicates that because he takes the name, the great Danton that he cares about his wife, obviously, it's obviously an incredibly sad thing. They obviously love each other. They show some of their scenes together briefly, but it does tick off this obsession in his mind and i'm wondering i mean obviously we haven't we haven't um experienced this level of rivalry in our own lives but do you have rival? i mean i would never identify who i consider my rivals or who i want to best in my own life i will say that i'm beating the people i consider my rivals (laughs) in lots of different ways i'll leave it there however you want to add it up uh fair enough but uh i'm wondering do you how do you feel about rivalry are you a competitive person because i am a really competitive person in some ways and in other ways I don't want to compete at all. But when it comes to my profession, I'm incredibly competitive. I'm completely cutthroat. And I always say that I when it comes to my shows, like I want to do the best PlayStation show ever. I think we do do that. I want to do the best retro and nostalgia podcast ever. I think we do do that. If I can't compete on that level, I don't even want to bother doing the show or doing something like that. And that's how I feel. And that's why that's what drives me with my work. I am I do watch what others I don't watch or listen to literal content, but I watch how they're doing, you know, and what people are talking about and what people are looking for. And and I like winning. I love to win. I think a lot of people know in my life that I'm I, I'm I might not be a winner, but I love to win when I win. I win. And I think rivalry drives us all a great deal, whether or not we want to acknowledge that or not. I'm wondering how you feel about that entire kind of subtext because that's at the that the heart of the movie is is this just this obsession with someone else now i've never felt that way about someone else but sometimes when someone lives in your mind a little bit and you want to beat them and you're thinking about them i mean that happens to everyone i'm wondering if you feel that in your own life whether professionally personally whatever yeah definitely i mean that notion of competition really does speak to me i mean there were two things in my life call that i felt that way about when i initially found skateboarding when i was 13 And it was like maybe the first athletic or physical thing that I really showed some sort of, you know, I I excelled at to some degree. I wasn't super talented or super gifted at it. I didn't have a God-given talent for it. But with 
work and dedication, I was able to excel at something for the first time. And I took it very seriously. And I remember being very competitive with my peers until I broke my arm badly when I was 17 and I had to sort of let that go. But up until that point, I was very, and letting that go was kind of hard actually for me for a while, but I was, I took it that seriously. It was like, I had to be the best. If there was somebody else that showed up at the spot or a friend of a friend, or even somebody who I was really close with that I grew up with was good. We, it would kick up a rivalry. It would kick up a a sort of, but a friendly competition between us. And I always wanted to, that was always very important to me. So that spoke to me. And now today with my profession, with animation, with animating specifically, I take it very seriously. You know, I'm very competitive with it and not to an obnoxious degree, but I want to, and I'm not obnoxious about it, but I want to always make sure when I'm handing in my scenes for an episode of a show that I'm working on, that they're the best scenes in the show. Like that's very, and that's not, that's with all, you know, that's with all conceit put to the side. I don't say that in a conceited fashion or an arrogant way, but that's really the way I feel about about it is that it's an all, I think it's really an all or nothing mentality. I think that's what it's really down to. It's like, if it's worth, my philosophy really is if it's worth doing, it's worth doing, not perfect. You got to be careful with that word, but to the best of your ability at that time. And I do that with animation and animating specifically, even more so than design professionally is when I go out and animate a scene, it's the best, it's literally the best I could do with the time that I'm given at that time. And hopefully it grows and evolves over time and I learn more and more as time goes on. But that's really the way I embrace that, you know, those specific things. Once skateboarding and now animation is like, I have to, you know, there's something in me. It's it's like you said, there's a competition in me. You know, it's like, I want to make sure that my stuff is the best. And I think there's also something there that for me, it might be a leadership thing too. It might be something where I'm trying to lead by example and I'm trying to inspire, if that makes sense. And I think for me, it's it's more so that than giving being given credit for it. I don't mind working in a vacuum because I know I'm going to sleep well at night if I did the best I could. And I always try to do that. You know, I'm, I'm, I have extremely good work ethic when it comes to that. I'm a, I'm a bit of a workaholic when it comes to that. You and I spoke about that recently on the show. But yeah, for me, it's more, you know, lead by example, inspire, and hopefully I could leave something there to inspire the next person. So there's, you know, I'm driven by that. And that that's why this movie really spoke to me. I could see that sort of love for something, that passion for something crossing over to a, into obsession sometimes. And I think sometimes that could be harmful. And again, we talk about the fallout of the people around us, right? We have to, when you're so wrapped up in being the best at something, Something in your life is falling by the wayside. It's just that's just a natural mm, order of things. Certainly. It has to be. Certainly. So that and I, I'm very mindful of that as a husband and a father because I know for me with animation, I can get really sucked into that, you know, that void and that world of being really too wrapped up in that. So you gotta be able to pull yourself in and out and develop some sort of healthy relationship with that obsession. But I could see that in these characters in the movie. And that's really what compels me about the film is seeing that the love of something, you know, these guys really love the craft of magic. That That's what their, their whole driving force in their lives, everything revolves around that. It's their passion. And it crosses over to an obsession. And you said something really interesting. When you have a rival like that, 
that obsession for the thing crosses over into obsession for the other person, you know, and you talk about your rivalries, Colin, the, the things you've come out of, and I won't speak to that specifically, but I think it's fair to say that you're not obsessed with your rivals, but you have a, you construe it as a rivalry, but these guys, the, the obsession has crossed over into obsession for the actual person that they're competing with, not just the thing. It's not just the magic. It's not just the show. It's not just the performance. They're obsessed with each other. I would say, especially Angier being obsessed with Borden. And that's where it becomes so destructive and, and so interesting. And I don't think I've ever been, I've admired people. I've certainly admired people. I have an animation mentor. I won't mention him by name, but who really taught me out of school and took me under his wing whether he kind of wanted to or not. And I learned a lot from this person. And I think this person still is like one of the most talented animators I ever met. Slightly older than me, still working. And I've admired him from afar and being like, wow, he's got this God-given gift that I try to take and pull from and everything. But I've never been obsessed with the person. you know. But these guys, these the Borden and Angiers of this movie, that's where it gets to be really interesting to me because that obsession... Is, is something that even transcends anything I've ever experienced. And I think I'm a pretty obsessive person. <laughs> yeah, it's more about the work than the individuals. I mean, yeah, I think it's natural. I, I think if you don't feel like a, a sense of competitional ri- or competitional rival or rivalry with someone or something or want to do better, I, I feel like that's a level of complacency I personally can't understand or acknowledge. I don't really feel like there's any point in doing things if you're not going to do them, not only do the best of your ability, but if you're really going to be like a producer of content, for instance, like we both are in our own worlds, then there's no point in doing it if you're not going to do put out what you think is the best content that you can. That's, of, of course, to the audience. That's a totally subjective thing. I don't know if it's true or not, but when I put out Twin Breaker, for instance, I really feel like that's the really the greatest brick breaking game ever, you know, uh, whether or not you like those kinds of games is another thing entirely whether or not you like the more straightforward gameplay of a breakout or an arkanoid or an alleyway that's fine too those inspired my game but we wanted to do things differently and put out something that was totally unseen before and we did and we're really proud of that so with our shows here too i have a lot of experience for instance doing playstation podcasts so i decided to do another one and it's doing great it's a beloved show and this is a a beloved show too and so that's what drives me is making the best possible content. And of course, everyone else can know that. I mean, I, I, I know other people watch what we do and, and listen and, and pay attention and often root against us. That's what makes winning so much better, you know, and right. and uh, I'm sure that that's the way it feels for a lot of athletes and whatnot, too. And I try to kind of temper that in my own way. I very rarely even these days, the last few years, make fun of or go after like even professional athletes and stuff like that, because I'm like, I know how it is to get torn down by people. The only exception is the Jets coach, Adam Gase, who I tweet at the Jets account often to tell them to fire him. Uh, but other than that, <laughs> that's about as much as I as much as I get into it. Now, Dick, I want to talk a little bit about the female players we have here because we haven't talked too much about them. Uh, we have three of them in Rebecca Hall, Piper Perabo and Scarlett Johansson. I would say that Rebecca Hall's Sarah Borden is really not that important. You can talk about her if you want to, but I'm more interested in what you thought about these characters of Julia McCullough, and Olivia Wenscombe, of course, Piper Perabo got her start in Coyote Ugly. Do you remember that that movie 20 years ago? Yes. Probably Holy now cow, about, the, about the sexy about it, bartenders. Though. 
And then of course. She, she was uh, the main character in that USA show for many years, uh, Covert Affairs. And of course, Scarlett Johansson, everyone knows Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow in the Avengers. More recently, she played Ghost in the Shell. She got her start in that really awesome teen indie movie, Ghost World. Do you remember that flick? Of course. I love that movie. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. So she's come a long way as well. I'm curious what you thought about these women and and their performances. I thought that they both did a really nice job. I was especially impressed with Piper Parabo. I thought that she put a really compelling character or a performance forward with Julia McCullough. Although Scarlett Johansson, I, I think, is incredibly attractive, obviously. But I thought she did a really nice job with Olivia Wenscombe. I was reading a theory about how her bad British accent was actually intentional <laughs> because maybe she's like an American or a Canadian that is faking who she is. And people brought that up, I guess, because obviously uh, the Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman, uh, Hugh Jackman's British, isn't he? So he's playing in a he's playing an American, I think. And then Christian Bale has is Australian Australian with a British accent. I think that's right. right. So people were saying, like, why were their accents so good and acceptable? And then Scarlett Johansson's was a little bit off to British audiences, I guess. And a lot of people think since Christopher Nolan, of course, is British, too, that they would have caught that. So uh, there's an interesting kind of sub theory about her. But what do you think about these characters and their performances? Well, you know, I'll start start with Scarlett Johansson because she's so interesting for me. And I was really thinking about her a lot with writing a few thoughts for the episode. Did I ever tell you the story that Joe, my friend Joe and I met her grandmother on the street? I'll save this story for another time, but it's hilarious. And right after we were basically taking a smoke break outside of work, we worked up in Hell's Kitchen on 51st Street at a little studio. This is on like the early aughts. And here comes Scarlett Johansson's grandma. It's an interesting story, but remind me to tell you about it when she comes up again in a movie. But right after we met Scarlett Johansson's grandma, here comes Aerosmith walking down the street. The whole crew, Steven Tyler and everybody. And, and they were all dressed like they were ready to go on stage. It was amazing. By the way, Steven Tyler, 5'5 five, five at the tallest. He's so short, dude. It's amazing. And I think he was wearing like boots. I think he was wearing like stiletto boots. I was like, it was amazing. I mean, I can't think of Scarlett Johansson without thinking about meeting her grandma that one time. But she's so interesting for me on screen. I think back to Ghost World, and that was probably the first time I saw her too. And I love that film. And I think about her in performances and in films that I really, really love. Lost in Translation specifically, I think she's she's really great in. Now, Lost in Translation is semi-autobiographical account of Sofia Coppola's what she was going through at that time and her marriage with Spike Jones and all that kind of stuff. So there's a little more, maybe a little more to play with there emotionally for a role like Lost in Translation. But for the most part, even in Black Widow and all the blockbuster stuff, it seems to me, and let me know if this speaks to you, Kyle, there's almost this thing with Scarlett Johansson on screen where she's serviceable. She's doing a good job and everything. Besides being you know, she's exceptionally beautiful, obviously. And that, I think that really helps in her favor, but it's not that her acting skills are bad. It's just that she always seems to be seating center stage. Like she doesn't really want to commit to taking center stage in that particular scene in that performance. Like she's always giving a little too much and not just taking this, taking ownership of the scene. Like she's a little too meek or Mm. something. There's something there for me with her, with this. And you know, she in this role, I think it works okay because she plays the lovely assistant. You know, at first, Angier's assistant, who later falls in love with the Borden character or the Fallon character, whichever one. And 
I think it works in her favor, but the thing is, she's kind of perceived in this story or, or looked upon in this story as being particularly insightful, where you have a character like, where she kind of knows the drill. She knows what's going on, where you have a character like Rebecca Hall's character who plays Sarah, who is basically being, you said it earlier, is basically being tortured by this whole thing. She feels inherently, the Sarah character feels like there's something wrong. And she has this whole thing with Borden of, you know, you love me some days and you love me don't because, you know, some days you'd love me and some days you don't because some days she has Borden and some days she has Fallon. And she doesn't know, you know, she inherently feels like something's off until the point of her committing suicide because she's driven crazy by it. I think she's a very tragic character where the Scarlett Johansson character, the Olivia character is much more insightful. She's much more up to speed with what's going on. And she's more instrumental in the rivalry because of that. And I think that, you know, just in talking about Scarlett Johansson's character with her performance, I think Rebecca Hall is super good in her performance. And I don't know that much about Rebecca Hall, but I loved her in, first of all, I didn't realize she was British. I had no idea. And also she is so good. And if you guys haven't seen it, I know I've mentioned the movie on the film, on the podcast before in Ben Affleck's The Town, she plays the young bank teller who is kind of terrorized by the bank robbers and later becomes Ben uh, Ben Affleck's love interest in the film. And he's a, you know, he's a he's a bank robber in Boston. She's really good in that. She's really really good in that role. And it was nice to see her in this because I you know, this predates The Town, I believe, and you know, playing a different type of Victor, you know, young Victorian wife, a young a young lady who's really in, in love with her husband, but who's not getting, you know, it's sort of an unrequited love. She's being tortured by this notion of not only because she's sort of estranged because of his obsession with what he does, but also because she just inherently feels like she's in love with two different men, and she is. It turns out she is, which is really ironic and tragic. So I love her performance, and then Piper Parabo. It's interesting for me because I don't know, she was really refreshing for me to see as the Julia character, even though we don't see her very much, she dies pretty early in the film. She's really, she was really a refreshing presence on screen for me because I feel like everybody else comes in with some baggage, you know, especially the Scarlett Johansson's, you think of Black Widow and other iconic roles that she does and even Rebecca Hall and being, you know, so busy from, I would say the, the mid aughts to, you know, the last 15 years, I would say she's been in a lot of things. And, you know, the Piper Parabo character was cool because the Julia character was neat because I don't remember seeing her. You, you talked about Coyote Ugly, but I don't remember anything else that she's really been in, to be, to be honest. So she was refreshing. So that's where I would, I would round up the trio of, of ladies in this. Yeah, I think that, I don't know, I was, really, I was really compelled by this Julia McCullough character, kind of a tragic character. And I don't know. It's, Gone it's, too soon. Yeah, I, 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 I feel like uh, I don't know. I just feel like there's a really, a really important feminine undercurrent to this movie, which I think is very masculine, and I think it's performed very wonderfully by and it's balanced very wonderfully by these actresses. So, because I think this, I think not that women can't be obviously rivals and competitive. Of course, they can be, but there just seems to be a a machismo right in this movie between the two men and right. they're, they're grounded by their their female companions and whatnot and i think that that's kind of cool so um i really really dig their performances a great deal 
Now, we, we have to talk about the other two characters that we had mentioned earlier in the form of Nikola Tesla and his assistant, Mr. Alley. Now, this is a weird kind of, I don't know. This is kind of, kind of a weird thing, I think, to a lot of people in this movie. And, and Hasha Mukhtar wrote into us about this and said, hey, Colin and Dagan, hope you hey. two are doing well. I wanted to know your thoughts on the introduction of the cloning machine. Did it lessen your enjoyment of the movie or break the logic of the world? I ask before because there are people I know that like the movie less overall with this element introduced because all the magic up to that point had a real world explanation for it. And then it turned into a sci fi movie near the end. Personally, it didn't bother <laughs> me. I was along for the ride. And by the end, I loved it. It makes the movie even more interesting than it already was. Plus, it's very Nolan to take outlandish and sci fi elements and ground them in his movies. So I agree with you there, but I thought it was a little weird this whole thing. And again, I think that there's this weird obsession with Tesla as a character, as a person. And I think most notably, most recently, although it's not been that recent, it's a few years ago now is he's in the order 1886. He's the guy that like makes your weapons and stuff. I always like the fact that they bring in historical figures. And, and of course, Nikola Tesla has long uh, inspired people. But I thought that this was a little strange as well. And I'm just wondering what you thought about Tesla's inclusion. And then, of course, what you thought about Andy Serkis's and David Bowie's performances as Tesla and Allie. Well, I'm glad that we're talking about this because this is something that struck me early on in the film. Besides the Victorian era or the Victorian setting, which I know you want to talk about, we'll get to that. This was one of the main things I wanted to talk about. And this is where I came down on it, because it is a little odd that you start off with this human story about two magicians set in the Victorian age. It seems almost like a, you know... A t- you have a, a movie specifically set in a specific time period. It's sort of a period piece turned sci-fi movie in a way. But here's where I come down on it, Kyle. Let me know what you think of this. Now, one thing I love the way the one thing I love that the, the movie does, I should say, is that the story offers a distinction between magicians or illusionists and sorcerers or wizards. One centers on and the movie tells us this. One centers on tricks and deception and sleight of hand, and the other involves actual powers beyond typical human understanding, and perhaps dabbles in the mystical and maybe even the supernatural. So think of like the tuxedoed up guy on stage with the top hat and the rabbit, sort of that old trope, versus Merlin or Gandalf, <laughs> you know, someone like a D&D, you said it earlier in the show, a and d esque JRPG-esque sort of rendition of magic, the mage, and that they're two different things. One is a performance and the other is a power. And I love that they articulate between the two things, but what it turns out to be is that the wizard or the Nikola Tesla character sort of becomes that, you know, sort of because it becomes the wizard via science. And that's what's interesting to me. Because if you look, especially if you look at it and sort of examine it from a Victorian 100, 100 plus year ago sensibility, where it was like that stuff, science was magic. And it's sort of perceived that way. Angier sort of perceives it that way through most of the film, where it's like, what is this thing? Is it, you know, is it teleporting? Is it clone? It turns out to be cloning. But in either way, it is sort of magical, especially during that time period. This was pre-cloning sheep and everything we've done in the more modern age. So I love that the way the movie sort of comes down on magic, 
via wizardry, via science, and how it separates all of those things where it's like one's magic, one's a stage performance, one's designed to sort of entertain and to, you know, cast an audience in wonder. And the other is actual magic, which is actual science, which I thought was really interesting. And I think it's so interesting with David Bowie because I didn't realize that he was an actor even before he started to take up music. Now, we talk about David Bowie being an actor, one of Colin's favorite films of all time that I'm sure we're going to talk about at some point is Labyrinth. And David Bowie is so wonderful in that movie. But he's really good. He's really, really good in this. I think because David Bowie has that sort of, it even transcends like David Bowie's fame or even like the transgender thing. It's a, He's actually got an awe, a real life awe and a mystique. And it was so interesting to hear Christopher Nolan talk about, he talks about working with David Bowie, that David Bowie turned down the role initially and Nolan did something that he's never done before, he says, that he actually flew to New York, like took a red eye to New York in order to sort of woo and pitch David Bowie on the movie. And of course, he accepted, obviously. And But one thing Christopher Nolan says is he's worked with a pantheon of movie stars, right? You look at the, the filmographies of everyone. Christopher Nolan has worked with the Leonardo DiCaprio's, every, you know, everybody. He's worked with everybody under the sun, all these huge movie stars, these famous people. And he said David Bowie was literally the only person he ever worked with where the level of awe and mystique was the same coming in as it was going out. He said mm. when David Bowie left after filming all his scenes, he was just as awestruck by the man as when he first met him at that pitch meeting in New York, which I thought was really interesting. And I think David Bowie really carries that off in the role because Nikola Tesla, especially if you look at during the Victorian age, he was this eccentric, brilliant, genius inventor. And it made me... David Bowie's performance, the movie in general, and Bowie's performance really left me with wanting to know more about this guy. And also, in talking about the David Bowie character, I have to say, the rivalry or the whatever that sort of echoes the Angier and Borden rivalry between Tesla and Edison was something that the movie left me wondering, did this thing really exist where Edison had agents abroad in Europe watching Tesla and stuff like that? Was this really the way it played out between these two men. And when I researched it, Tesla worked for Edison in some junior capacity for years. And I think met Edison once. So it wasn't like that in real life, but I love the way the movie sort of played up this, you know, this rivalry between the two, you know, the British inventor and the American inventor and these two luminaries that I guess it really wasn't like that, but I love the way the fiction played it out. And Kyle, do you want me to talk about the um, Andy Serkis character right now as well? Because he was interesting for me. Yeah, yeah, please do. Please do. The Mr. Alley character. So my precious, I can't even think about Andy Serkis without thinking about Gollum. But I have to say, so nice to see Andy Serkis out of the mocap world. I know I'm 15 years too late, but he's just got a great face, Andy Serkis. He's so super expressive and interesting, Mm. almost Peter Lorre-like. And, you know, he's almost got this Peter Lorre brand of compelling, just an interesting guy to look at. So much facial character. And I guess that's what makes him so sought after in the mocap ping pong ball world. But I like that, you know, Circus said he envisioned a guy who fled the corporate world 
in order to take up the place at Tesla's right side and maybe seeing Tesla as a business opportunity. And really interesting because you get that sort of New York Northeast accent, you know, somebody who maybe had the vision or the foresight to say, okay, what this guy's doing here could is important scientifically, yes, but also this could make us a bundle type of thing. And that's the resonance I got from the character. And he's also the liaison between Tesla and Angier. Really, you know, again, and seeing Andy Serkis in, in a Nolan movie, Nolan going outside of his stable or what would become, I think in all fairness, is, you know, it's fair to say, what would become his stable. Nice to see other players move in and out of that, you know, that stable of players. And I really, I really enjoyed him in this movie. I thought Andy Serkis was brilliant. I don't know that I've seen him in too many things where he wasn't doing the mocap stuff. Yeah, he's obviously, like you said, best known for... Uh, that scene with Lord of the Rings. And I think he was even he even did some production work and like kind of went behind the camera, I think, in the Hobbit movies a little bit. And so I think he's kind of existed in that Peter Jackson esque world for the most part for most people. Yeah, I thought he did a really nice job too. really interesting to see him in it. Didn't expect to see him as far as David Bowie is concerned. Uh, Rick wrote in and said, I'll be short. And to the point, is this the best movie featuring David Bowie? The answer, of course, is no. As Dagan already said, Labyrinth is. <laughs> and I'm dead serious. I think Labyrinth is an absolutely brilliant film. Dagan already that's said it's, so it's one of my very favorite movies. And that's one, another one of those movies I'll probably never do because or we'll never do on this show because it's like it's like a new hope where we'll just keep stringing it along. But I absolutely love Labyrinth. I, I love that, everything about that movie, including uh, David Bowie's enormous crotch in it, which is one of my favorite parts of the film. <laughs> but it was interesting to see him. And, and um, you know, I was watching the film with someone and she said, you know, I was like, oh, it's David Bowie. And she didn't even realize that it was David Bowie having seen the film already before. And I'm like, yeah, it, it, it doesn't quite look like him or sound like him. You can tell it's him, but it's not quite as like you said, it's not quite as flamboyant as he would usually maybe be. He, you know, he has all these different characters he plays and these different outfits and these almost different generations that he goes through the Ziggy Stardust stuff and and all, all the rest. So uh, it was really nice to see him. I thought it was a really understated performance. And Tesla is supposed to be a weird, brooding, obsessive type. And they get into that a little bit. And I, I think that it's just an echo. We've, we've talked in the past on the show about echoing and fiction and the even though you don't really get an idea of why why. Edison is coming to Colorado Springs. You know that Edison and Tesla, at least if you have some background knowledge of that era, are rivals and hate each other basically in real life. And that is what it, this is all. They're just it's just an echo of what's going on between Borden and Angier, which I think is exactly. cool, even though you don't, like you said, see uh, too much of Edison or too much of Edison and Tesla's beef with each other. And and like you said, I love how Angier thinks that Tesla is really like taking him for a ride and just stealing his money because he's been basically alienated from most of his financial sources and and proper scientific sources by kind of the the, the crazy shit he gets up to. But I like that they kind of explore that as well. And I, I thought it was a cool grounding element for the film to have him in it because he's, a, again, a real person. So I like I like when thing obviously a lot of things take place in the real world, but they don't often ground themselves in the real world. And this grounds itself in the real world as well. And speaking of the world, it is something I wanted to talk about, and it's what I took the most notes about, actually, which is a couple of things or a couple of things. First of all, I really love this representation of late 19th century London, the grit, the dirt, the black and gray, the soot, the coal, the imperfection, the mud, the wetness. It really feels right 
I feel like that era, and I think this is why people are so fascinated with things like Jack the Ripper and stuff in that era and white, what is it, Whitechapel or whatever in the late 19th century in London. I feel like there's just a very specific way that England and especially urban England looks at that time. And I think that they capture it really well. It's the intersection of this this steam and coal powered industrial revolution that's now been going on for 40 or 50 years and people kind of going to the cities to work in these new factories where they can get jobs. They don't have to work on in the um, agricultural sector anymore. And people are on top of each other and people don't have money. And they really show it actually in the apartment that Julia McCullough lives in originally because the paint is like if you look at the walls and the door and stuff like it must have been painted in like 1810 or something like that. It's really it's really fascinating. So I really love how they they capture so well London's crowdedness, its dirtiness, its imperfection, its it's it's moisture, you know, like everything. It's grayness. It's not brown. It's gray. It's black. It's soot. And I really thought that they did a nice job of capturing that and contrasting it to how we see at least a little bit of Angier dealing in Colorado and Colorado Springs on the train. It's clean. Colorado Springs is beautiful. It's well lit because Tesla is basically making an unholy alliance with the town to to kind of do his experiments quietly and silently. Uh, it's nature. It's the frontier. It's it's all of that. So I, I think they did a really nice job of of setting these two places and and grounding them in the reality of what they really were. And Colorado's in, in, in the 1890s is still a pretty mysterious place to a lot of people. I mean, the Rocky Mountains are still impassable to many. I mean, obviously, lots of people have gone to the West at this point, but still in the pre aeronautics era, it's still a pretty daunting place to go and try to get around. So I thought that they did a really cool job of presenting those places. What did you think of the settings of London and Colorado? Well, you know, it's funny that you said all that. You said it so perfectly. You almost leave me with nothing to say about how how they depicted it. But what's interesting to me, Kyle, is that when you see, you know, we see Victorian era London or England specifically, London in this case, depicted so much in fiction on film. And one of the things that I realized early on, maybe halfway through my first viewing of the film was that, yes, it was a realistic, believable depiction of this era. But what I wasn't getting was that typical, as you said, you know, that sort of dirty, sooty, primitive dire if it seemed a little less dire it seemed a little less primitive it's so you know when we see that period it's always defined by hardship or antiquity or it's always i feel like it's always sort of unfairly juxtaposed against modern times you know like look at this wheelchair it's rusty iron and wood you know it's it's dark and everything's unpleasant and you know just visions of dirty and unkempt and all that kind of stuff and it's it's interesting too whether it's a look at particularly of like that period via the slums or via poverty or the upper class, the, you know, the aristocracy, it doesn't matter. It's always seems like it's that soot covered steam powered period. And I felt like this was a little less exaggerated. Like they weren't really playing that up in a negative way. And it turns out that Nolan was purposely trying to kick against that. You know, he said what he sees this, the Victorian era, he feels is unfairly defined by, you know, this primitive, stoic, you know, you know, defined by everybody having a hard life and all that kind of thing. And he wanted to kind of accentuate it as a period of growth, as it was, you know, evolution 
and learning and advancement, excitement and technology and change. He wanted to re represent the period with a little more optimism and positivity, maybe a little air of hopefulness that you can draw a line to, which, you know, I could see this too. You can draw a line to how these things would evolve to modern times. It's, it seems less foreign. It seems a little more modern and a little less long ago. You know, like look what it was like long ago before we had all these modern luxuries before, you know, look how people lived. It was kind of refreshing to see that. And I got that because they play it up early in the film where it's like, you know, you have these old water tanks and this old stagecraft and everything's made of wood and everything, but they didn't make it seem harsh or harmful or dire like you would typically see in a movie like this which I thought was actually, for me, was actually kind of refreshing because it was a different look at the period. And to see that, I felt good about myself because I was duped so many times in this movie. At least I got that out of it, whereas I realized like Christopher, Christopher Nolan was trying to elevate the depiction of the period, you know, a little bit outside of where it's normally, you know, that zone where it normally lands. I, I got that. I got that he was doing that. And when I read about it, I, mean, I saw him talking about it in an interview. I was like, oh, I get it now. He's still, you know, we still feel like we're immersed in, eight, you know, late 1890s London, but it feels a little more like there's a little more sunlight. It's a little more upbeat, maybe a little more romantic and less, you know, feeling a little less dire and bleak. Yeah, totally. I totally agree with that. It's worth noting too, Dig, that it is late Victorian era because uh, Queen Victoria, I think, dies in 1901. So things are changing by that point. And then you get. God, I don't know my British history very well, but I think it's Edward the seventh and then George the fifth and then Edward the eighth and then George the sixth and then Elizabeth the second, which is what we have now. So not too far disconnected from this era in terms of lineage. Wow. But but uh, yeah, I can see that Nolan interpretation um, of being relevant to maybe giving us a little bit of a different mix of what this late 19th century England was all about, because, of course, it's not quite as cut and dry as everyone working in the factory 16 hours a day. And there's eight year olds dying in fires and whatever the fuck was going was going on in the <laughs> London and New York City and places like that in the in the late 1800s. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about that I was really fascinated by in this and took some notes on and I wanted to get your take on this as well was just the idea of entertainment being ephemeral at this time. And it was about the act as it was about memory and, and being memorable and, and altering or changing someone's life or interpretation or trajectory. In other words, Obviously, we had photographs and daguerreotypes at this point. Uh, phonographs were starting to come out. People can communicate over long distances with telegraph wires and all the rest. But for the most part, what I really enjoyed about this particular performance in this particular film in this time period is that people were going to these theaters in London and elsewhere uh, around the world to really be entertained. And there was no way to record it and there's no way to see it again. And you had to go to another show to see it. You it was word of mouth and people getting excited in newspaper articles. In other words, the expectations were lower on what people can do and what people were entertained by, I think. But the results were more impactful because people didn't get to see this or do this every day. This was something they could they could read books and read newspapers and go to live shows and theater and all that kind of stuff. But there was no I mean, and this goes without saying, but there's no TV or film 
there's no really accessible recorded music and obviously no Internet and all that kind of stuff. So I was thinking about it through the lens of a modern person like ourselves, where this stuff isn't even really that interesting. But for the people at the time, it's like incredible. It's something that they go home and talk about and they 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 go off about with their friends and it really stays with them. And this more ephemeral form of entertainment, I feel like is very much of the time. And I, I was curious what you think of that. I always think about people going to plays and there was not even any way to project the audio. You had to just be really loud and people going to these magic shows and and circuses and fights like early fighting and and um, what do they call it? pugilism, right? All sure, that kind, yeah, all that yeah. kind of stuff. It provided value and instilled wonder. But it's not the same level of stuff we think about today. Like when I think about the circus, I'm like, I don't want to go to the circus. You know, like, <laughs> right. I really don't. I have no interest in going to the circus. Even zoos. I'm like, I don't know. I can just go on the Internet and watch 4K videos of anything I want. I don't need to go to the zoo. I don't want to see people, you know, perform magic tricks that are not even real. And it's just illusions. Now, that's my own take on it. I've seen some really great shows in person. I saw Penn and Teller in Vegas, for instance. It was awesome and stuff like that. But and even Cirque du Soleil and all of that kind of stuff obviously instills a lot of wonder. I'm not saying that those things don't exist. I'm just saying that the entertainment and the expectation of entertainment is just so different now. And I felt like that was really played through in this movie. And I'm wondering what you think of that point. Yeah, absolutely. It really does harken back to a different time, a time that's so far removed now. We talk about the Victorian age not being that long ago, but in those terms, in terms of entertainment, it feels like it was so many ages ago. So different. I mean, even when the time we were born, born, me in the earlier 70s, you in the early to mid 80s, it had already been so different. And also, this is before the advent of widespread radio too, right? Radio was just in its infancy at this point, right? In the early 19, late 1890s, yeah, late 1800s, early 1900s. I, I think radio wasn't even like a widespread thing yet. So you really did. You had books and you had live shows. You had live music, li- live stage shows. Maybe the circus, as you said, would swing into town. Maybe early versions of like carnivals, and fairs and stuff like that. And that's really all you had. The other thing that's really striking to me, Kyle, is promotion. You know, for these shows, you think about early promotion. There was no TV or or films or even radio. You had everything was bills, flyers, and posters. And they really played that up in the movie. You see those polls covered with, you know, weeks and weeks worth, months and months worth of, of bills and flyers and tattered flyers coming off layers, layers and layers thick you know, plastered onto the poles with nails and everything like that. It's, it's so interesting to think like, you know, even in terms of promotion, it really was so important to get word of mouth. It was all word of mouth. And it must've been so interesting just for the mystique, just hearing stories about how something was, if you couldn't get to a show or you couldn't afford a show, just hearing it through, you know, word of mouth through people telling stories about it. It must've been so interesting and captivating in a way. And, and, you know, it's so interesting to look back because we think of it in terms of hardship, but these people didn't know what they were missing because they didn't have these inventions yet. It's just like, the, you know, examining 200 years from now, they're going to look back at 2020. <laughs> maybe maybe they should look back to 2019. Maybe they should go to tw- Yeah, don't, don't to examine 2020. <laughs> but you know what I mean? They don't, we're not going to, they're not going to, they're going to be like, wow, those poor people. But we didn't know how great it would be in 200 years or even a hundred years. 
So that's the type of thing. It's like, wow, can you even it's but it's so far beyond the pale of like our, our imagining, I think, because of what we have now with just being, you know, having media at our fingertips and computers in our pockets. And like you said, watching whatever you want when you want. I mean, this is really the antithesis of that. Yeah, it's interesting. The ephemera of it, I'm fascinated by. It goes without saying that this was the result of living in that time. I mean, there was no there was no choice. So going to a circus and seeing an elephant or something is a really remarkable thing when you grew up in London and maybe never even left the area. And so you see this really exotic animal. That's obviously a big thing. And so times have changed now and it's so much harder to entertain us. I I think about that all the time, even when we're younger, you and I are younger, like and how quaint it is for the thing, you know, just driving cars around like little matchbox cars around or whatever and Tonka trucks and stuff. I'm sure I, I know a lot of kids still do that, but now they have such a different level of expectation of entertainment that I think it's really uh, an interesting thing to think about. And I couldn't help but escape that when I was watching this film. So I wanted to throw that out there as well. Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting was seeing how some of these tricks are performed. And one of the things I was most disturbed by was the whole thing with the doves and the birds. Uh, Frank G wrote in about this and said, I still couldn't believe the ending the first time I watched it, uh, blah, blah, blah. But he says, nonetheless, I think the movie was great. My favorite scene is when the little boy cries for the bird's brother. We see the fucked up side of magic here and just how much of your life it cost. I didn't know that that's how they did that trick. The collapsing cage. Yeah, I had no idea. I, d- I didn't know that. It's really quite grisly when you think about it. I mean, you don't have to think about it too much. It is. It is grisly. <laughs> it really is. Did you know that at all? Like, did you know that that's how they did? That? I guess I just assumed that these birds were you always kind of associate doves in these different parakeets or whatever with magicians. So you wouldn't assume that they were like killing them by the scores, basically. And uh, did that disturb you at all? I, I don't know if I find it disturbing as much as I just didn't know that that was what was going down. Yeah, it makes I mean, it does make sense. I don't think I ever really thought about it. But then, you know, you see the images in the film, too, of the rooms, whether it's, you know, in an apartment somewhere or under the stage where you have this the flocks of of birds and cages, you know, kept like an inventory of birds that you would use. It's so sad. But yeah, it does make sense. You know, and it is, it is grisly and it's really cool in the movie that the child perceives that, you know, the child is, you know, as they say in the movie, as adults, we want to be fooled. We want to be entertained. We're not really looking. We kind of think we're looking for the solution, but we're really not. We want to be duped. We want to be awestruck. But the kid is with that innocence. They're looking for, especially when it comes to animals and, and cute things, right? They're looking for that. They're looking for the answer. They're looking to see how it's done. And when the kid has the perception to realize that that bird is being squished, it's so sad. But he's right, you know, and it takes it kind of that that it took a child was so interesting. Yeah, the way that really went down. So it makes me think of like going down, no pun, but going down a rabbit hole of seeing like the magician with the rabbit and the hat and everything. How was, you know, hopefully that wasn't the same thing where it was like, you know, it's it just see, I mean, it's just as it's just as terrible for a bird. But the rabbit thinking about a rabbit being harmed is particularly grisly. You know, they're bigger, they're fluffy and adorable. So that's I hope hopefully that's not and and the woman saw it in half. Hopefully they didn't have cages full of actual women. Yeah, <laughs> just throwing this, discarding them. <laughs> oh my god! Now I want to ask you uh, about this as well, which people have brought in, which is and you can read about these things on the internet about this movie, but 
kind of all the alternate theories about what is happening. James Ketchum wrote into us about this and says, after multiple viewings, my interpretation is that Bale's twin wasn't a twin. He was a clone. He beat Jackman at Tesla and Tesla's technology. I know this theory is derided in film circles, but it put Jackman's character always in the wake of Bale's genius, which to me is the point of the film. I don't know how deep you got into some of this stuff, Dave, but the alternate theories about what is happening in this movie is pretty interesting. There's a lot of interesting rabbit holes, pardon the pun, about what is going <laughs> about what is going on in this film and what is real and what isn't and what is considered gospel and canon and what is just an interpretation. I'm wondering if things kind of went for the film or, or I'm wondering if the story for the film kind of is more based than you think it is into or we would think it is in terms of the fact that it is what you see. There is no sleight of hand in terms of the story itself. We know that we know that there is a twin. We know that there are clones and all of this other stuff. But do you think that there's any hidden or different interpretation of the actual events of the film other than the way they're interpreted generally by people. In other words, do you have any weird theory about what happened in the movie that might not be shared by others? You know what? I ha- I have to say, I have to admit that I had to read up and investigate. I wasn't perceptive enough to get it, whatever it is on my own. But the one thing I t- I'll tell you from the from very early on or the very barest, I'll lay bare my my ignorance here. They, I didn't even get the fact that the Angier character was in a bunch, you know, was was cloned at length in a bunch of tanks under the stage. I didn't see that. I had to read about that after. So I knew there was an, another Angier there at the end. But when we cut away, I didn't realize that he every time he did the trick, another clone would drown in the tank, and that was via the means of you know framing up the Borden character for his, you know, for his murder and all that kind of stuff. I got all that, but I didn't get it. I couldn't put two and two together on my own. I had to read up on that later. That's an interesting theory that the Borden character was cloned as well. I don't think so though. I don't, I think that for me, I don't see why they couldn't just be twins. Now think back very early in the film, both magicians, you know, you have this sort of ever ascending one-upsmanship in the movie, right? Like there, there's always a new reveal for how these characters are trying to get, you know, trying to one up each other and trying to get the upper hand on each other as the story goes on. But they're both taking their cue from very early on from when Cutter says, go see this Chinese magician. And they realize the two at that time, sort of assistant magicians or apprentices realize that that magician is basically living a lie as a cripple. He has this public persona of being a cripple, of being, you know, weak and this whole thing. And they realize the magician's whole life is around fooling people into his act with the goldfish bowl act. And they sort of take a page out of that guy's book and then they sort of center their entire lives on their act as well. So I think it's enough that, you know, it's it's interesting. That's an interesting theory that Borden would be a clone. And they and they show that one scene where he cuts off, you know, they have to cut off Fallon's fingers to match the fingers that Borden lost, which is so, oh, man, that was a, that was a hard scene to watch, even though they cut away. Right. That was tough. But, you know, I think I think that's basically what it is, is that, you know, the, the whole idea of it 
isn't cloning or science or wizardry or what magic or even sleight of hand or, you know, for duping somebody or anything like that. I think it's more commitment to living a certain lifestyle where the only thing that matters is the illusion of your act. And it takes, it could, it could take their, your entire life, your entire life becomes an illusion in order to achieve that illusion successfully on stage. I think that's really what it's more about for me is the idea of that, even insofar as all the trickery involved, it's just the idea of committing to that. That's so striking. Yeah. It's it. I'm not, I'm like you where I'm not smart enough to have really thought at a meta level about what the hell might've been real. Like what is, might be sleight of hand, sleight of hand where there's something even unusual about the way the movie is going down with certain characters where it's, it's trying to appeal to certain senses and then it's, it's something else. So that obviously is what the movie's all about, but I didn't really think about it at a level deeper than that because similar to what you just said, I, I'm, I'm struggling to keep up with what's going on in the movie on a, on a base level. Cause I'm just not, <laughs> I'm just not intelligent enough to know, you know, like I, I just, I don't see it very well. Um, like a lot of other people do, but I did think that there was something weird and Joey Mendoza wrote in about this with the cloning in particular. And he says, hey, Colin and Dagan, what do you think happens to Angier's subconscious after the real transported man after performing the real transported man? Every performance Angier has to commit the ultimate sacrifice of killing himself by drowning, which is a horrific way to die. And his clone is created a short distance away. Do you think the clone has all the same memories? Does he have two separate subconsciouses or does he share them until one dies? And if they share one, then he will experience the death together. So there, it is a little weird in that regard about what is going on here with the twin or the the clone performance. Because why would you con- continue to? It, it's just a little confusing about what who knows what. Like at first, I thought I kind of had. I, at first, I thought with the the knot thing before we knew that there was a twin. I'm like, how do you not know what the knot is? Like, this is so weird. Didn't you right. look, didn't you look at the knot? That <laughs> was the one thing. Know? Yeah, like she's dead. Like, look at the way her hands are tied. I don't, I don't understand. So you would know that, but this was also a weird kind of thing where what is happening with these clones? And I thought that they they dealt with it kind of cleverly because he hires all blind people, which I thought was pretty cool to work underneath the stage and they show that right several times which i think is clever so they don't really those guys couldn't even know even if they wanted to know they didn't really know what they were transporting or where they were bringing things or what was going on with the bodies and all of that so there was a little bit of weirdness there but i thought it was it's so clever by half every time because it's like well he hired blind people and they have no idea where they're taking this guy and stuff and i thought it was kind of interesting in that respect but i don't know i don't know that there was anything I got to maybe you've watched it more than I have. I think I got to go back and maybe and watch it again at some point. I rented it on Amazon, so I do have another day or so with it. Maybe I'll check it out again tonight. But I just feel like I just feel like it was pretty tightly told. Like the story is pretty tightly told and makes a lot of sense to me as a base level kind of viewer. But it was fascinating to view the um, the film through the eyes just briefly of reading some of these Reddit threads and other places of people that are really obsessed with what this film means and and all the things that are hidden in it. And I was a little surprised by that, not because I don't think it's a great movie, because I do. I think it's a really great movie. I really loved it. But I don't know that the intrigue is that deep for me in this film. I don't know that I'm pulled that much into it like I was with Interstellar, which I could watch like over and over again and find new things in it. Or even when we just did Inception, which was also voted by the audience. I felt like that movie had a lot more nebulous depth 
than maybe this one did. In other words, I think this one was maybe a little more straightforward. And I think that that might be because Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan didn't really write it. So it doesn't have the it, it does feel like a Nolan esque story, but I think it's because they found a Nolan esque story. They, they didn't make it. So it doesn't have oh, those good point. You know, they didn't have those extra layers to add into all the weird shit. That's like an inception and an interstellar. And I'm sure that's in tenant. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, it seems it seemed that it's the thing was that I got, especially for the latter half of the movie, I'd say the second half of the movie was, again, that constant one upmanship where it was like, OK, now Borden has the upper hand. Now it seems like Angier has the upper hand. Then there's another reveal saying Borden was one step ahead. Now there's another reveal saying Angier was one step ahead. I don't think there was any indication unless I missed it of the cloning you know, what the subconscious would trans or the consciousness would translate into. I don't think there was any indication of that, you know, where it would be like where the clone would feel like what the original source person would feel or anything like that. You got into the thing with Mr. Alley and the top hats and the black cat. And at first you think it's going to be some sort of teleporting thing, but it turns out to be actually a cloning thing. That whole reveal was interesting. I felt at the end that, of course, Angier frames up Borden for murder. Basically, you eventually realize that he just murdered a clone, that he didn't really murder him. It was set up that way to, in order to frame him, in order to frame Borden. And then Borden has the upper hand ultimately by the whole time being a twin. So Fallon would always be around to care for little Jessica because no one ever knew that there was two of them. So then you feel like he has the upper hand. Then at the very last reveal before we cut to black you see that there's multiple Angiers. So then you realize as the film ends that there is, you know, whether that's, you know, whether that, you know, you could construe that Angier is still alive, right? That they were just clones in the tank. So that for me, when it cut, it was like, oh, okay. So Angier kind of won, but they both kind of won because Je little Jessica ended up with somebody. She ended up with a caretaker because it was particularly, particularly insidious for Angier to frame up Borden for murder, knowing that and, and become the daughter, try to become Jess's ward, particularly because, you know, Jess would be left with with nobody that, you know, that she could, you know, her mom was already dead and Borden was going to be hung. So it was particularly evil on Angier's part to go through with that. So you realize, though, that, you know, and Borden has the upper hand because there's a duplicate. Jess is going to be taken care for. So you kind of have a sigh of relief. But then you see Angier at the end under the stage right before we cut to black. So it's like, OK, who got the upper? It's, to me, it was more about that was trying to keep track of who, you know, ostensibly was winning or won. Ultimately, via the, the rivalry, you know, their rivalry that was to me, it was more about that. And, you know, again, presenting to me, it was also presenting the real magic or the real magician, the real wizard was Tesla and saying, I don't know if it was quite making a statement that real magic was was the science, but and not coming down in judgment one way or the other on that, maybe from a moralistic point of view. But, you know, for me, it was more that. But now that, you know, you do think it is very Nolan-esque and it's winding and it's multidimensional and textured approach to things. And again, is it created for repeated viewing? As you said, Kyle, it's adapted from a previous work of fiction. So maybe it's just, it was Nolan-esque to begin with. And that's why, you know, the Nolan brothers were interested in it. So it's hard to say, but I felt like it was a pretty satisfying ending. I mean, I felt like, you know, it was this battle 
between magicians. It was a battle of wits. You know, who was going to be the more clever. And I kind of feel like they both won and they both lost. You know, that's Mm. really where it left it for me. It was like that, the wake, you know, all the human suffering, all the human tragedy as a result, you know, the wife, the, the wife, both wives die. And then, you know, so it's like, the, is the girl going to be cared for? Borden actually dies, but Fallon survives. Angier loses a lot via his obsession. So it was like, to me, it ended in a, it, it was a satisfying ending, but I feel like they either both lost or they both won, if that makes sense. I didn't yeah. feel like it ended, didn't come down. It didn't judge who really was the ultimate winner of the two. It's an interesting interpretation. Yeah, I think you're right. Because I was saying earlier that it comes off to me that Angier becomes more of the antagonist and that Borden has the upper hand. But then Borden kind of ends up getting fucked by the antagonist. So it it's like, I don't know. I don't I don't it, it really doesn't come down or rather it really isn't to me about anything other than obsession and one upsmanship. Absolutely. And, and really could be parlayed into any field. I mean, I think they did it in magic, and I think that it r- works out really well. We did get a, a few letters about this. Piers Watson and others did write in about this, but I won't read too deeply about what they said because they all had the same theme. But did you feel like the movie's sci-fi turn ruined it? I mean, do you feel like that? I feel like I was a. We talked about this a little bit before, but I wanted to get a little deeper into this as we begin to wrap up. I just feel like. I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't crazy. I, I wanted it to be some. I think in in if I I don't know what I would have wanted it to be, but I feel like I I wanted it to be something else ultimately, not some sort of weird cloning trick. Like the whole thing with Borden having a twin is so much more quaint and interesting and re- real and Victorian, and than this idea of Tesla going crazy. And while I love Tesla being in the film. I just feel like the, the the turn to sci-fi, I think, is from the letters we got from our audience, pretty divisive. And then it does swing back. But what, what do you think about the inclusion of those kinds of elements? That's true. It does swing back. Yeah, it's interesting for me. It didn't re- personally. I could see that. I could see why it would remove a little bit of the, the luster from the movie for people. But for me, it didn't really take that turn. It, it didn't ruin it for me, the sci-fi thing. Again, I sort of perceived it would have been it would have been nice to get a little more of Tesla, maybe his origins Maybe what, you know, exactly what he was after, what he was about, give him a little more texture and dimensionality. But for me, it just came down as there were three magicians and Tesla was one of them. You know, Tesla was another wizard, you know, to me. And this thing, I know, you know, he was a real character. These things existed. It seemed to be, again, examining it through a Victorian lens it seems to be, you know, you could imagine that sort of thing of what he was getting into in Colorado Springs. That could be really compelling, especially from the, the, the viewpoint of thinking of a, a person in the late 1890s that, you know, from that point of view, it would be particularly interesting. And it makes me think of not only Edison, too, and other inventors, but also guys like Einstein and what we knew they were getting up to only a little bit later with experimentations with the Philadelphia experiment and teleportation and what they were, you know, supposedly developing and what they say the Nazis were developing during World War One and two and what, you know, they were getting up to technology wise. So I, to me, maybe I was a little bit I was a little bit swept away by that because it felt like it fit into the time period. I know even though I don't have intimate knowledge of of those things, I, I know those things went on during those time periods. And there's something really exciting about that because 
you know, they marvel, for instance, for instance, Angier marvels that all of Colorado Springs has electricity at that time. So can you imagine seeing this device from, you know, 100 years ago where a lot of people, there's not even widespread electricity yet, you know, power grids and all that. And seeing this device that Tesla has cooking up must have been so exotic and crazy. So I think I got swept up in that and seeing that sort of in a, in a Victorian setting was kind of neat for me. And it felt like maybe it's long ago enough, or maybe it's the way they pulled it off in the film where it didn't feel, it felt like science, but it didn't feel like science fiction, if that makes sense. Sure. No, I I totally agree. And again, hard to leverage too much of this against the Nolans because it's not their story. So they're interpreting it and they did it apparently pretty faithfully. I do want to ask as we begin to wrap up, and of course, we'll kick it back to Dagan to see if we didn't talk about anything he wanted to touch on, but... Oliver Gia wrote into us and said, hey, guys, so glad that you're finally getting to this one. The Prestige, in my opinion, is perhaps Nolan's most underrated film, often overshadowed by his bigger and louder works. Why do you think it's gone under so many people's radars despite the stellar star power and fantastic story? Do you think Nolan will ever go back to these smaller films or is he going to be a blockbuster director indefinitely? Would appreciate your thoughts. It is true. Mm. I mean, this is a 40 million dollar movie. This is not a high budget movie for Nolan at all. He makes hundreds of millions of dollars. He, his budgets are usually several hundred million dollars at the most. It is interesting to go back and see a more quaint Christopher Nolan film before he was really Christopher Nolan. But I do feel like his expertise these days and his brothers are wasted on films that are smaller. I even felt like Dunkirk was weird. I like Dunkirk a lot, actually, but I felt like even that was like a little disappointing because just because you knew it took precious years off of their lives or off from their careers. You only have a finite amount of Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan years to work with. So them working on anything that is not of an interstellar quality is almost like a complete waste in my mind. Now, I think that Dunkirk was really, really well done and incredibly impressive, especially with the way it dealt with time. And we won't talk about that too much here. I don't want to spoil it. Although Dunkirk really happened, everyone. So you can go read about it if you want. But I just feel like it's how I feel about Naughty Dog when people bring them up when, when they're like, well, wouldn't it be cool for them to go back and make Jack and Daxter? And I'm like, no, that would be horrible. Why would you want them to go back and make? <laughs> there's nothing wrong with Jack and Daxter. It's just like, why would you want them to go back and make that when they make this now? You know, and it's the same thing. Wouldn't you want you, you might not want Uncharted or The Last of Us out of Naughty Dog, but you want like a a character platformer out of them? Are you kidding me? Like they, they've moved so far beyond that. And that's kind of how I feel about Christopher Nolan. It's cool to see a more personable movie. It's got a lot of star power. It was made on a more shoestring budget in quotes for for Nolan. But when you think about it compared to Inception and Interstellar and the Batman movies and what we see of Tenet from the the ads, again, we haven't seen it yet ourselves. It just seems like he's he needs to play in a more expensive play box, a sandbox for us to really get the most out of him. And that's why I think this movie flies under the radar, because I don't think it's Interstellar and I don't think it's Inception. I just don't think it has that kind of draw. What do you think? Yeah, he's re- he's really interesting. It feels like the more I learn about him, the more compelling he becomes. I really think that he's just generally a big idea guy. I think he just thinks in a big sandbox. Like you said, he thinks big. But the fun the funny thing is he's he really does have skills and they're on display here. You know, he's got skills at developing humanistic stories too. And I'd like to see him further his character building vehicles because of that. You think about something like Inception, right? You have Cobb, the character of Cobb. He's a really compelling character. But how about developing and fleshing out the character of Alfred a little more, for instance, right? I hear things about Tenet. I hear it's 
you know, it's really, really um, cryptic, actually. And I was sorry to hear that because I like having both things. I like having the big set pieces, the big ideas, time travel, interdimensional travel, whatever the thing is, whatever the vehicle is for that particular film or that particular project, but also weave in the human side of it. And I think this movie does that. And I think that's why a lot of people like it. I think it's really, you know, it does it more so than most of his movies. It's nice that he has both skill sets. So why not sort of bring those two halves together and make more things like this? Maybe make another prestige, but do a little even more, you know, ramp it up to the next level, make it a little more set PC and, but still hold on to those humanistic stories. Again, the, the whole thing about this movie is, that it feels relatable more so than his other projects. And mm. I don't know if that just talks to a workaholic or an, obs- you know, an obsessive person, uh, an obsessive person, sometimes maybe obsessive compulsive in that, you know, I understand having a passion for something. I understand being crazy, you know, driven, driven into a mania by something, being crazed about something, really loving something. And, you know, for me, I try to strike a balance in my life, but I understand like it doesn't, it's not too far from who I am to be that obsessed with something. And I think it really spoke to me and seeing the tragedy and the fallout due to that is something that I'm sure goes on in a lot of people's lives. You know, we saw it, you know, for instance, we saw it happen with mom and dad. Dad worked. Our dad was a workaholic. He was away a lot. The fallout was that he didn't get to spend that much time with our mom and they got a divorce. You know what I mean? So it's like seeing that it's a it's a very typical thing. And this is this is a, a set piece. It's set back in a in a in a day we don't, you know, not familiar to us. It seems a little exotic. You're dealing with, you know, an eccentric scientist and crazed magicians and all this kind of stuff. But underneath all that, at the foundation, it's really just a story about passion and how passion crosses over to obsession and the effects it has on the people, on the obsessors. And everybody around them. So, and the obsessees. So, to me, that's what makes it, you know, that's what makes it really fun. Again, I was expecting this really, again, this Harry Houdini-esque thing about magic and what's real and what's not and all that kind of stuff. And the way this movie came down on magic, just being stagecraft, right from the beginning, it was like, oh, what am I getting into here? This doesn't seem Nolan-esque. And you got a little more of that, of the human side, of the story side, of the emotional side. And I'd like to see that woven into a little a little more of, of Nolan's projects. You know, get he has obviously has that ability. He has great and he's also great at casting. You know, I don't I'm not sure what kind of actors director he is, except that he has a stable of movie stars that love to work with him time and time again. I think that's very demonstrative. Hmm. But right? So I, I'm sure he's great with actors. Sure. So he has that ability. Why not you know what I mean? It's and it's you know it's not a question of money or being hungry for him anymore. He's one of the biggest filmmakers in the world. He's one of the most sought after dudes. So it's like, why not go back now and get a little more of that indie? It's a shame they have to you have to call it indie, but get a little more of that emotion, human side woven into your stories. It was sad for me. I didn't see Tenant yet either. It was sad for me that it was like maybe it seems like from what people say like the most cryptic. Like you don't know anything about the main character, the the Washington character. You don't know anything about him, not even his name type of thing. It's like, oh, I don't, that's not what I'm looking for. Like I'm looking for hmm. a little more warmth, looking for a little more emotion. But hold on to that Nolan-esque 
you know, the, the visuals, the aesthetics, the big, the grandeur. I love that. Have, just have both. Yeah. Yeah. You could have both. And, and you make a good point. I, I, I actually think it's a double-edged sword because on one hand, he has this stable of actors he goes back to. I always wonder when, an, when a director or a writer does stuff like that, what does it say about the people he doesn't go back to? I always think about that, mm, right? Like he too. goes back to Michael Caine. He goes back to Christian Bale. He doesn't go back to Hugh Jackman, right? No. Like he nope. doesn't go back to Scarlett Johansson, right? It's, no. it's interesting. I always think about that, but he goes back to Tom Hardy. You know, he, he, he wants to go back to or Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I always just think about that stuff. Like it says a lot about the actors he works with. It also says a lot about the actors he doesn't. And um, absolutely. And I wonder, like, it would be cool to see Hugh Jackman. Crop. You almost kind of root for some of these people to pop back up. So, you know, that they're on good terms with Christopher Nolan, like it even matters, you know, <laughs> but it would be cool to see. It would be cute. It would be cool to see Hugh Jackman pop back up and be like, you know, here's Hugh Jackman again. You haven't seen him in a Nolan movie in 15 years. But yeah. So is there anything about I always struggle talking about Nolan movies because they're so labyrinthine and complicated. So I hope we've did it some justice? I don't know. That'll be up to the audience. But is there anything that we didn't discuss today that you wanted to touch on before we go? No, I mean, you're absolutely right. They are difficult in a way to articulate because they are. They're just they're just big. But you know what really helped me, Kyle, with this one is finding out that he makes them like that on purpose. You know, he's really thinking in this in this fashion of I want to make a movie that bears repeated viewing. Like I want you to watch it several times and it's not to make money, but. What, you know, at least the way he says it, but you know, he wants to give you a movie that bears repeated viewing, that bears re- multiple viewing. Maybe it's his way of saying, of of thinking like, this is of a high enough quality to rewatch, or maybe it's in his way of saying like, you have to watch it. You know, I want to make it, I want to, I want to imbue enough mystique where you don't get the whole thing unless you watch it three or four times. I think that's okay. I think it's an approach. I, you know, he's all about, he says he's all about sticking to his guns and it's something that he's learned as a filmmaker. And he's also said this movie is an analogy, you know, an analogy for filmmaking, which I think is really interesting. And I'm not sure if he's talking about the craft of filmmaking or working inside of the Hollywood machine or both. I'm not sure what he's referring to there, but I like that he comes down on, you know, this is his formula for movie making that his values are tied up in what he produces. And he really feels like he has to make a movie that, you know, is a little cryptic unless you really, really examine it, unless you really are down to investigate, unless you're really down to immerse yourself. And I think that's okay. I think that, and I think that's what we're going to get with him. I don't think that's going to change. He seems really, really, you know, he seems all in for that. And, you know, I think that's what makes him special. That's what makes him stand out against, you know, everybody else, the, the Tarantinos, the Scorseses, all the filmmakers that we have that we love for different reasons. I think that's what I think that's what we love about him. And I know I know for Tenet, I know I'm going to like it. I know I just know inherently that I'm going to like it. There's a really there's a style there also that he very rarely talks about. But I think he's a very stylish filmmaker. We talked about that with Inception. And I think he has a lot to offer. He has more to offer than most filmmakers or most Hollywood creators, you know, creatives. I think he has a lot. He has the aesthetic. He has the, you know, the big picture mentality. He has the blockbuster mentality. He could work with actors. He's a writer. I, you know, he could, he could talk in terms of art direction. He, he offer he, and he talks in terms of music, you know, he's got, he's really interdimensional like his films. And I think 
that's what makes it, you know, that's what makes us go in for a, a Christopher Nolan movie. And I think that's what's so tragic about not seeing Tenet yet. It's like, I really want to see that film. And I went to the movie. Did I tell you? I went to go see it at the movie theater. I had like a few hours to kill. It was like during the week. This was well over a month ago. And my movie theater shut down. It oh. wasn't, it was just like shut down. Like, that's it. Like, it's, it's done. Now, I don't know if they were renovating initially or if they just shut it down, but apparently it just shut down, which I think is really sad. Yeah, that sucks. For Nolan, I think I would just leave it at that. The other thing I just want to shout out, you guys know I'm a big Michael Caine fan. 87 years old, dude, now. Still, now, he, you know, he was a little younger 15 years ago when he filmed this, but I mean, unbelievable. I love, I love him in this role. So much warmth. Everything we could expect from Michael Caine. You could really see him as that mentor-like father figure you know in this case of these of this Cain and Abel pair of magicians so pretty you know kind of tragic for this character for the cutter character but you know he just got he has so much wisdom sewn up in just his Michael Caine-ness and you could see him really holding court on a movie production of like really being the father figure of those actors and actresses too I can imagine and I just I just love him I I just hope Michael Caine never goes away he's the best and also in interviews, something I didn't realize this with, with Michael Caine, Kyle, even in interviews today, like in the last couple of years, he refuses to have a set question list in, you know, going into a, going into an interview. He doesn't want to know what the interviewer is going to say or ask. And he's very, he's so adept at conversation and he's so clever and he's so on the ball, even in his eighties and so witty and funny that it's amazing. Like I aspire to be Michael. If I could be as clever as Michael Caine five years from now, I'll be so excited. Like still like just into my fifties, I'll be so excited because he's, he's just a special dude. And I want to, I want to do a thing with knockback where we do some British gangster movies, like get Carter. We could do the Italian job. We could do some really fun stuff Sure. where we could talk about a younger Michael Caine. But the funny thing about him is he hasn't changed. And that's what I love about Michael Caine. And he and you know what the other thing is he's a, he's in this a little more I want to say than other Nolan vehicles he's 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 he plays a, a slightly bigger part in this film you see a little more of him and that's another movie to you know that's another move to give this film an A plus for me yeah I, I think that's very well said yeah he does seem a little bit more upfront here as opposed to an ancillary character and I love him too I I think he's great and really my introduction to him for the most part was through Nolan films so. I know he's been around acting, I think, since the 60s. And so there is a lot to discuss with him. And I'm a similar way, by the way, with interviews when people have me on their podcast or whatever. I don't like to know either because I just think it makes it more interesting and more fun as opposed to me preparing to be asked certain things. And and then you're not asked those makes things sense. or whatever the case is. So sure. All right, sure. All right Dave. Well, that is uh, our conversation about the 2006 Christopher Nolan film, The Prestige. It is, as of the time we're recording this, at least in the States, it's on Amazon, but you have to rent it or you can buy it. And it's on PSN as well if you want to buy it there. And uh, so I rented it on Amazon. I assume you did the same, but it is available in various places for you guys to go watch. Hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for voting for it on Patreon. Now I kick it back over to Dagan so we can wrap this bad boy up. All right, Kyle, I have a one off now. Very exciting. Okay. Closing segment just specifically for our prestige episode i call it hocus pocus oh kyle i just want in the interest of speed i thought it would be fun just give me your mile high thoughts on these magicians both fictional and real in fact 
why don't we just go with one word? I'll, I'll tell you a magician, a, an illusionist, a sorcerer, a wizard, whatever. Okay. And you give me one word that makes you think of this particular person. Might be tough, but let's try it. Let's okay. try out this model and see how it goes in, sure. in, the, in the interest of, in the spirit of experimentation. Okay, Kyle, I'm going to start with this one here. David Blaine. Weird. <laughs> That's <laughs> nice. Very nice. Yeah. Okay, Kyle. Merlin. Uh, fake. I wish he was real, though. You know, that's like the original wizard. So. It really is. Yeah. That's the original wizard. That's, that's true. All right, Kyle. Gandalf. Now, we could go Gandalf mm, the white or the Gandalf the gray. the gray. I don't care. I don't care. Doesn't matter. Oh, man. Um, wise. Very nice. Could see that one. Okay, Kyle. Harry Houdini. Wish I knew more about him myself. I don't. Well, after seeing all that stuff, I'm going to have to say cool. You know, I'm, I'm telling you, people, go look up some of the pictures of him. Like, it really looks like a Rolling Stone cover, some of the stuff. It's, it's really cool, man. It's cool. It's interesting to think about him as, like, the first rock star because I can't really think about anybody like that who would predate him that was doing... There must be somebody, but I can't, I can't think. I can't to think. Yeah, he's... I mean, he made an enormous... Apparently, an enormous amount of money, so... Yeah, he was a big guy, big rock star. Mm, that's interesting, too, to think about his fortunes. He was a smart enough businessman to turn his uh, his skill set into bread. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, well, think about it just quickly. I mean, you talk about David Blaine and some of these other guys, but and Penn and Teller, but there aren't many people that make their like a major living off of being an illusionist, you know? So No, not no, anymore. definitely not. Yeah. All right, let's go to the let's let me jump one ahead and I'll go back. Penn and Teller. Give me your mile high thoughts on Penn and Teller. Funny. I really like them a lot. I think they're really great. And, you know, they're I got awesome. I got to give a shout out to them. When I saw them in Vegas uh, with my ex-girlfriend, they apparently do this every night. But I didn't know this. I don't know if they do it anymore. But out, I don't know if I saw them at like Caesars Palace or whatever, wherever I saw them. But they literally go outside of the, the theater and stand there and they meet people as they leave. You can take pictures That's of them awesome. and stuff. And like everyone gathers around them to hear them. And try to shake their hands and stuff. And I was like, wow, that's pretty fucking crazy. <laughs> you know, because they're. Oh, see, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So they're accessible. They they very much so, you know, and and um, Penn always had Penn Gillette always has a little bit of a standoffishness to him when you see him. Like he seems a little bit like a dick. But I thought that that was, and obviously Teller doesn't really talk, but I, I thought it was interesting that that really kind of painted a different picture of him. So, <laughs> you know, that's so interesting to me because they've been relevant. Since at least, I'm sure they've been around for longer, but they've been relevant like in the public eye, TV and movies and everything since the 80s. And, you know, I know they still have residencies in Vegas and stuff like that. So to stay big and stay relevant for that long and also dabbling in video games, you know, popping up in music videos, their act tied in with, you know, comedy and political commentary and all that kind of stuff. It's really kind of a special thing that they do. You know, just in fact of being overarching, I guess you could just call them performers and that, you know, and to be evergreen, like have a career that that lasts that long, I think, you know, popping up on Joe Rogan now and just always seeing seeming relevant, you know, staying relevant. I think that's really special. I think that's probably really hard to do. I think that probably takes a lot of work. Yeah. You know, you think trends change, right? Fads change and they stay a constant. Which is interesting. They're really into like civil. They're like civil libertarians and are really, like you said, active in the political sphere with that stuff. And they did that show or I think they might still do it. Bullshit, which has been on forever. 
So there's a lot of, yeah, they, they're businessmen. And I was reading about their relationship with each other where apparently they don't really hang out or anything like that outside of work or like, you know, they've, they've kept a really healthy life work balance with each other. So they've been able to stay with each other, you know? That's wise. That's probably wise, especially if you're dealing with different types of personalities. Talk about chemistry with Christopher Nolan and certain actors and actresses. I think it's the same thing. Like you probably could spend every waking minute together, but it would take a very special type of dynamic between two personalities for that. I think most of the time, the distance would probably be wise. You know, I, I think so. Not for everybody, but I think a lot of the times there would be wisdom in that, you know, <laughs> in that philosophy. You know, that's that's and that probably speaks to, you know, that's why bands break up. You know, that, look at the Beatles. They didn't last long. Right. Absolutely. So interesting. Interesting. All right, my friend, let's go back. Oh, David Copperfield. Where do we stand on David Copperfield? Gaudy, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good one. Yeah. Definitely. I said Vegasy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Gaudy. Right. Yeah. Gaudy. Perfect. All right, Kyle. I had to t- I had to pull a couple of characters from Harry Potter. Let's go with Harry himself. Brave. Mm, good one. And Dumbledore, I chose. Dumbledore. Um persistent. He's really old, right? In the Harry Potter universe. So yes. I'll say I'll say that. All right, nice. All right, my friend. I'll give a special shout out to Tella. I was gonna and say Palum and Parum. I was gonna ask you when you were gonna bring them up. I was also thinking of Fusoya. I knew you were gonna bring someone up from Final Fantasy Four, but yeah, I was wondering if you're gonna bring Tella. Tella was, oh, I I was forgot Fusoya. That's right. Yeah, Tella. Well, Tella and I know Palum and Parum are your favorite. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I have a couple. I told Dagan I have a couple of villains in the game I'm writing that are inspired by Parum and Palum. I'm really it's blatant and it's exciting for me because <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I'm most excited. I was telling, I was telling Dagan, I'm most excited about writing all the enemy lieutenants in the game. And so I'm really excited about the, uh, the twins that I wrote in there, but, uh, I can't wait to the, dude, that game is going to be bonkers. It's going to be so fun. Yeah. I'm excited about it. Dagan's going to write a side quest for it. So I, I still have to finish the Bible, which I'm going to dedicate 2021 to, and then we'll get the game out in 2022. But yeah, that's it, I guess. Right. Dang. Well, well, let's finish up with a dad joke before we go. Yeah, okay, I got a couple of new ones here. I got new ones that are relatively new on the interwebs that I found today, but I'll, st- I'll do one and I'll save the other one for next week. All right, <laughs> Kyle, my coworkers voted me the most secretive guy in the office. I can't tell you what that meant to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. I good like shit. that one. I thought it was going to go for like a secret, like there was a secret ballot or something, but that, that even was better. Than I could have imagined. You got voting on the brain. You're thinking about voting. Yes, of course. Everyone go vote. I actually got a I still I think I might actually have to do a um, provisional ballot here in Virginia. I don't I don't have a Virginia license yet, so I can't uh, or ID. So I think I actually have to vote provisionally this time. Although I'm really not very I got to be honest with you. I really don't even want to vote (laughs) this time. I'm just like, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Whatever. I think a lot of people are in that boat. Like, I don't really want to do this, but. Um, all right. You're not inspired? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. I mean, is anyone is literally anyone inspired by this? I don't think. I don't I think don't, so. I'm pretty sure they're not. So, uh, all right. Well, that's it, Dave. Uh, thank you again for uh, the audience out there supporting our show, voting for this topic, and supporting some Patreon. By the way, of course, all of your Patreon perks also carry over to Sacred Symbols, the PlayStation Podcast, and 
we are having or we will have some new things in the hopper as well, including, by the way, if you sign up at the five dollar up a month uh, level, which is the most popular level at CLS's Patreon, you get access now to our exclusive Discord server, which has more than a thousand people on it now. So that's exciting. A lot of good conversations going on over there, which is fun. So if you guys are into that, please do consider it. And like I said earlier on in the show, reviews and nice scores on podcast services would be appreciated as well. But we appreciate, of course, your time, your love, your consideration. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Until then, goodbye. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Richmond, Virginia and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Paul Joyce, Ryan T. Mandel, Jorge Palomino, Enrique Perez, Don Lee, Brad Cooley, SLDFMA, Daniel D'Amour, Patrick Leslie, Jeremy Key, Joey Finelli, Azan, Ben, Michael Vecchio, Morgan Ashley, Miguel A. Brewer, Isaac Wastman, Zach Parsley, Ross Marenka, Jerome Ferreira, Stephen Nieder, Gregory Slavinsky, Bjorn Campbell, an unofficial controller podcast, Andrew Morgan, Constantine Valencia, Nick DeMarco, Jariah King, Homeworld Hub, Shane Rayum, Mark Boggio, Jonathan Reich, Chad Lewis, Keith A. Lewis, Lennon Brixey, Peter Reynolds, Greg Juliff, Spencer Brown, Joe McPartland, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lou and Ray Loper, Josh Bushing, Betty Ann Moriarty, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Tony Zuniga, Alex Cabrera, Corey Wyatt, Adam Nix, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Sean Chandler, Petro Rose, Justin Wagaman, Tyler Harris, Toby Schutman, Madmock Media, Lawrence F. Prokop, Toothless Gibbon, Martin Beck, Donnie Nolan, Todd Paxton, Josh Yeager, Miranda Grubba, Michael S., Marius Garson Peterson, William O'Carroll, Mike Wayne, Mubarak, Gerald Pennington, Phil Crone, Dylan Burns, Brian Chan, Connor Gashian, Throw Seven, Josh Gravelick, Tyler Bellow, Anton K., Sean Battershaw, Geo Corsi, Josh McKinney, Alan Tremblay, James Kinslow III, John Cordero, Organic Produce, Carl Tolman, Richter86, Nathan R., Joshua Smallwood, McDog18, Patrick Carper, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Ryan R. Kittredge, Barrett Boswell, Hugo's Desk, Chris Buston, Sean Mason, Damon Weathers, Matthew Perdue, Jesse Owen, Chris Galvin, Ryan Murdoch, Colin Davenport, Blake Israel, Sci-Fi Book Club, Anti Kinnanen, Taylor Barkley, Scott Lovelace, Andrew Parker, Robbie Hensley, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Gavin, Bloody Fang, Eric Harden, Matt Martin, Mason Cadillac, Richard Hebert III, Saul Balcazar, Raul Melendez, Kevin Komaki of Fortuna, Boots, Megadet, TB Lightning, Galja, Darren Gardner, Daryl E. Naiman, David Castanez, Greg Lada, Christopher DeVaio, Ray Leja, Jay Getter, Vexius, JJ Game, Jeff McCardo, Zach Bonham, Colin Jewell, Nelson LeBlanc, Daniel Johnson, Lateriant Johnson, Nick Thornton, and Casual Misfits Gaming.